Hello, and welcome back to Metastation for our podcast recap analysis, whatever it is we do, of episode 505, <laughs> Shifting Sands. Uh, I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer who is still in Los Angeles, California, for one more week. <laughs> Who's still being all fancy in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think... We are going to start with Cabby this week in Eden. Uh, <laughs> there is Claire's sigh of joy and satisfaction. <laughs> the Cabby content was uh, lit this week. It was pretty damn yes. good. <laughs> uh, I have so many thoughts and feelings. I just want to. I want to take actually a moment <laughs> before we get into it, just to like have a little kind of like moment of remembrance. For all of the wonderful theories we've had about the season that died this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, the for real. Should like, we list them? Let's list them. Yes, let's um, let's list them. Let's list them. So Okay. So n- number one, Elegius are not nightbloods. Yes. Number two, the cure uh, is Abby for Abby's not pregnant. Abby's not pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, the cure has nothing whatsoever to do with the thing in anyone's stomach or with flailing mm-hmm. strange worm things. It's yeah. at least at this moment, seemingly run-of-the-mill pulmonary disease contracted by the miners mm-hmm. in the course of their mind. I assume right. it will turn out to be more complicated than that, and Abby will discover some other thing is happening i'm sure but right now it's just like oh you have like lesions in your lungs that are maybe cancer Mm -hmm. uh all of our many theories about what that thing in that dude's stomach was it's not aliens it's not (laughs) nanobots (laughs) it's nothing to do with night blood of all the things that i ever thought it would be i never fucking thought it would be sandworms that is for sure I should have. I was like, as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, well, yeah, okay, that was obvious. <laughs> we were all like way overthinking that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the simplest answer is the most accurate one. Yeah, right, exactly. Occam's razor, everybody. Occam's razor. Uh, <laughs> um, are there others that got uh, totally killed this week? I also thought this wasn't necessarily a. Um, a theory so much as I thought that the Maddie Clark reunion was going to come much later in the season than this. Oh yeah. I was, I was actually, I sort of realized midway through the episode, like two, you know, three quarters of the way through the episode. I was like, Oh, that probably happens this episode. And, but yeah, I was expecting it to be later yeah. too. Um, and then let's see. All of our theories about what the hell was going on with, uh, cause we got that still, of Octavia with her hands on Bellamy's face and Clark's like what the mm. fuck face and we got the the kiss on the cheek in the trailer and there was much theorizing about that and I I don't know <laughs> that I ever quite landed on like a straight up Fredo moment but you know there it is right, right, right. yeah <laughs> yeah I don't I don't think that I expected the the cheek kiss to be quite so overtly like I love you you are my brother I will kill you. <laughs> Oh, well, so here's here's one area where I think speculation is still rampant that we don't have any answers for yet is uh oh, okay, so there's my two, my two my two big questions. One is where the fuck is Nyla? Yes, that is a question mark. Now, one thing I will say about this that is that 
there hasn't actually been anything for Nyla to do. And in the kind looking at it from a kind of like real world TV making perspective, right. you know, like they would have to pay Jessica Harmon for another episode of television mm-hmm. just to like have her standing in the background to confirm that she's alive. So right. Right. maybe she's fine. But on the other hand, she is conspicuously absent. Yeah. Or I mean, yeah, and it's and it's possible too. I mean, like the most like fits all the facts and least gruesome interpretation is just just some of Octavia becoming Blood Reina. Like, is it just sort of like Nyla doesn't like this new version of her, and there's distance between them, and that's why Nyla is not like in the inner circle, and not that she like is dead, which I hope that she's not. Um, and then my other question is, and maybe I don't know if we know this for sure, but like, did. Did Clark and Bellamy eat people? (laughs) (laughs) I had that thought. Yeah, because it's so, okay, so. I couldn't tell from, because it was dark, like, what they were eating. And I know that she said, like, the farm's not not working. It's just, like, it's, like, barely working. Yeah. And then, so I was like. There is still, I think, ample evidence to suggest that one crew is perhaps eating people at least some of the time. And there was that other moment at the end when Kara Cooper was like all horrified at Octavia saying, leave the bodies behind, which could be because she's like, Mm. we honor the dead. We don't just like leave them in the desert to be pecked at by vultures. Or it could be like, we honor the dead by eating them. Therefore, we right. don't, like waste not want not, you know. Well, that's what that's what I assume all of me for all of us means. Yes, yes, there is. That's like it, my yes, yes. There is a, a very, I think, a decent chance that later in the season we will have like a super disturbing moment where like Bellamy and Clark and whoever else is sort of joined up with them. The rest of Space Crew probably realize like, mm. oh fuck, we've been eating like unknowingly eating people. This whole time, and we did not know right. it, which, like, ugh. But, yeah, so that is yeah. definitely a possibility. I also thought that maybe <laughs> the the Vincent, Vincent guy yeah. might be, like, a, a cannibal as well. There's a thing about staying away from his mouth. See, and that's what I thought was the most compelling argument against one crew being cannibals is that it was like that's a lot of cannibalism in one show yeah <laughs> they're introducing this like crazy serial killer guy who is pretty much heavily being alluded to will give you the chumps if you get too close to him like it just uh, so maybe like, vincent I mean, maybe maybe vincent defects from oh. Elegius to one crew later on because he finds out like oh wait you guys are cool with eating people sweet <laughs> i got tons of intel for you <laughs> Or maybe he becomes their, like, official ambassador. Um, (laughs) The other thing I was thinking with Nyla, I mean, like, I think it does seem to me that the fact that we haven't seen Nyla means that there's something that has happened to or with her in the intervening six years that is going to be a reveal later. Yeah. You know, to me, that doesn't mean necessarily that she's dead and has been eaten or dead and or has been eaten. Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, because the other thing about Nyla is that last season they established, I mean, like, you know, going back to when Clark brought her the panther meat in season three, and then last season when they were getting ready for Prime Fire, she's the person who knows how to butcher and store meat. So I'm also kind of wondering, like, maybe that's part of it. Like, Nyla is, like, you know, is, like, involved in the processing of human bodies, and that, like, that's what happened to her is not that she 
is dead, but that she became like the bunker butcher, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Possibly under duress, you know, like maybe, yeah, maybe, you know, like her relationship with Octavia deteriorated because Octavia was like, you have to do this. And Nyla was like, well, if it's this or death, I guess I'll do this, but I hate you. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah. So so I think there are many possibilities left for Nyla. Yeah. I like the idea of her being an extremely grudging human butcher and how that will impact when she inevitably, like, connects with Clark again. Yeah. That's sort of an, an additional, you know, like, because that's... And just to, like, to talk a little bit, I think, about the top of the episode before we jump back over to Eden, you know, Clark... Clark's still trying to put the pieces together of exactly what happened in the, in the bunker that has everyone so traumatized. Yeah. It's a really interesting place to start. You know, like, I can see both sides of why she would go to Jackson for information and why Jackson would be resistant to give it to her. But, like, she, like, there's still so much that she's missing of, like, what happened down here that made everybody turn into this like not Mm -hmm. just octavia but like all of them Mm -hmm. you know and and so i'm i'm interested in you know nyla who's so clear-sighted about people and their motivations and will have i think uh i mean and she's and she's so she's so tough that it's like i i think it's unlikely that whatever happened in the bunker shatter her the same way that we saw that it did with abby and kane yeah actively complicit in something that just broke their spirits in some kind of a way, you know, while they were down there. And Nyla, I feel like, with potentially like a little more distance from the things that happened, I think she's going to have a perspective on what went down that could be really, like, she might be the the one person who can kind of give Clark, here's what happened, here's how it all went down, here's how we got to the place that we got to, with more of a kind of outside yeah, that would actually be really fascinating be really if she turns out to be the sort of storyteller that Clark finds who yeah. will actually, like, tell her the story. I Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see if that maybe happens yeah. in the, in 506. And it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to hear, like, what Nyla's version – because Nyla's always been – I mean, she's a grounder, but she's a little bit of an outsider, you know? Like, she didn't mm-hmm. live mm-hmm. in a village. She was kind of, like, on this – border between two clans right you know she's she's always been a little bit of a little bit of an outsider a little bit of a chameleon so she doesn't particularly seem like i mean it would be it would make kind of sense if like she still is a little bit on the fringes you know like she's Mm -hmm. she's not like not a part of one crew obviously because otherwise she'd be an enemy and she'd be dead uh (laughs) you know she's like has enough detachment that she can sort of like give Clark a version of the story that it seems like she wouldn't get from Miller, you know, and that Jackson, like, so interestingly, it is, it was kind of interesting to start at that point where Jackson's just trying to, like, save people and Clark's trying to get him to talk and he seems so, he seems, like, scared, you know, he seems, like, really reluctant. Yeah, that was so weird to me. Yeah, yeah. That was, like, very surprising. It was not what you would expect from that interaction. Like, it was so transparently, like, like, how fast can I, can I flee this conversation? And, and that, you know, and, and he, and he was also very, like, you don't make the rules around here anymore. Like, I think there's an element of, not that he doesn't like Clark and isn't happy to, like, see her again, or, you know, or Bellamy, but just sort of reminding them that, like, I don't answer to you two anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you are, like, you're not the bosses. We have a whole new sort of social structure now. But I also felt like, on some level, is there, like, a, an awareness on his part that, like, 
there's nothing that he can he can't really explain to Clark why things are the way they are without incriminating himself in it a little bit, mm, you know, like like yeah. is there, or just like I don't really want to see the things that I'm complicit in doing through the eyes of somebody like Clark and Bellamy who knew the version of me that existed before, you know, like, like a little like what Octavia is doing. Yeah. Well, and a little bit of, I mean, it's, you know, a kind of a different version of the problem that Kane posed for Octavia last Mm -hmm. week, which is that Mm -hmm. we're trying to get people to see a different perspective on what they were doing. And Clark and Bellamy, just by virtue of existing, do that, you know, like they're not like Kane where they're sort of like an, a rebel or whatever, you know, an insurgent. They're just outsiders, you know? And so suddenly, right. yeah, I think there might be some of that awkwardness with Jackson. Although it was like interesting to me that Jackson said, you know, told Clark, we could have used you in the bunker, you know? And I think mm-hmm. it feels like there's a, there's a couple of levels to that, you know, that, that it's not just like we could have used another pair of hands in the med bay or whatever, you know, but like we could have used you. Certainly for her mother, you know, I think I can imagine that he wishes that Clark had been there for Abby while she was struggling with her addiction and so forth, but then also just another voice, you know? Yeah. And somebody who could potentially have ended up being a better leader. Yeah. Like could have like given a choice between Clark and Octavia as leaders of that community. I certainly feel like part of the subtext of what he's saying is Clark would have been a much better option. You know, yeah. And, and, (laughs) And that potentially Clark might have found a way to keep everybody together and create that unity that everyone was trying to create in a way that didn't involve everyone having to do the things that they ended up having to do. You know, like yeah. I think Jackson is is one of those characters where I feel like he's he's always trying so hard to do the right thing. And I feel like he is somebody that I could really see being less hardened to like resigned but not indifferent to the choices mm-hmm. that they had to mm-hmm. make like I did this because I had to but also like feeling it on more like the same level that Kane and Abby do because he knows like this is necessary but that doesn't mean that it's right and you know and maybe potentially part of it is sort of thinking you know if they've been able to open the bunker and let Clark in you know on day 43 when they heard her knocking maybe the things that happened to them wouldn't have happened. Maybe they wouldn't have lost 380 something people. So that, that felt to me like a little bit of a sort of a sense of wistfulness of like a lot of things from Abby to one crew to Octavia to maybe things that he himself had to be like directly complicit in. A lot of things might've gone differently, might've gone better and might've happened in a more, morally aligned with Jackson's worldview kind of way if Clark had been the person who sort of even as like Octavia was still leader but Clark was still there kind of as like a moderating force you know although you know it's funny it's like I think that's one of those things where it's like it makes sense that Jackson might think that but you know it's one of those things where I I'm not sure that that would actually be true but it is easy to look at somebody who wasn't in there who who hasn't made that shift yeah. and think like man if only you had been there. It's like well if only the Clark who had lived outside for 6 years had been there the whole time and somehow not changed. Okay, fine, but I could see I you know it's like funny because I could definitely see Clark. I mean Clark is not a character who is unwilling to do fucked up things for the greater good, exactly. you know. Yeah. So but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. I I think it's certainly maybe one of those things where hindsight 
knowing what he knows now, it probably seems like, God, like anyone would be a better leader. Yeah, than, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, like hindsight is like, yeah. we could have done better. Here we could have done better. Here we could. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. But the fact is that like the bunker turned Octavia into that. Yeah. And so like the bunker could have turned anybody into that. Right, you know? right. turned Kane into that. There's like, there's, it might not be that, you know, that anyone is necessarily like, Immune, and it could have been worse with a different person. Yeah. You know, well, I think so. that was Jaha's point in 502, which is more or less that mm-hmm. not so much that power corrupts, but that like being in power, being in that kind of leadership leadership situation forces you to become a person that you maybe didn't want to be. You know, it makes forces you to sort of turn off parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. And to do things that you had always thought that you would never do, you know, and I think we're sort of seeing Octavia come out the other end of that, having sort of taken that to heart in like a particularly extreme, messed up kind of way, which is the which is the Octavia way, right? Like Octavia never does anything a little bit, you know? (laughs) Like, Octavia is not like, <laughs> Octavia wasn't like, well, I'll, you know, I'll be a sky person and a grounder too. Like, I can, I can kind of be both. She was like, no, I'm not you. I'm going to go live with Lincoln. I'm a grounder now. And, you know, she's like, she doesn't, she doesn't like, Octavia doesn't ride the fence, you know? So, so yeah. like, that is definitely a factor in how they wind up. black and white. Yeah, yeah. And how they wind up where mm-hmm. they are. Should we just keep going with the polis thing since we started there anyway? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I, I think one thing I thought was really interesting that I was sort of like waiting for and expecting to happen, and this was the episode where we really got it, was like the return of active Clark. You know, like I think mm-hmm. in the last episode, her role in, you know, in the bunker storyline, like like she was really there sort of as an observer. She was kind of there for us to watch her watching what was mm-hmm. happening, you know, like for us to be sort of seeing how the bunker looked to Clark through Clark's eyes and the, you know, and the changes in these people and the, you know, the, the bunker that she like fought so hard to, you know, like to steal, to save sky crew. Mm-hmm. And it was all like clean and pretty when she left it. And now it's this like <laughs> blood stained murder pit and 400 people are missing, you know? So, you know, what was interesting about, about going from the last episode to this one was sort of like the slow steps towards Clark applying her old school Clarkfulness to Octavia. And it sort of starts off with her, you know, sneaking around with Indra to get Kane and Abby out of the bunker in secret, sort of like the beginning of it. And then I thought, really, like we start right off the bat here with she's like, she's trying to gather information. She wants to know what's going on. Um, she immediately is like, nope, that's a bad plan. I have a better plan. She's got you that know, like she's... instant Clark bossiness, you know, of sort of like, yes, yes. Like so Miller, really like Miller, old stop. Clark. Talk yeah. to me. Like, like, just yeah. she just like it sort of has that kind of like I'm Clark Griffin. You will stop and tell me mm-hmm. what you're doing when I tell you to stop and tell me what you're doing. Sort of yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's really interesting watching that like on a on a smaller level with Miller, and then on a much bigger level with Octavia and everybody around Octavia that those tactics don't work anymore. You know, which is fascinating. Yeah, that she gets totally shut down in a way that she didn't even when the arc came down in season two. And I think, you know, one thing that I thought was like really fascinating in that sort of in the opening part of that dynamic is that the kind of flip of now, you know, Clark is the grounder. She has the knowledge of that Mm -hmm. world 
And, you know, it's patterns and it's weather and it's dangers and the ways that you can sort of exist in it. Like she has that knowledge that they need. And Octavia is now the one who's just kind of like barreling on ahead as Mm -hmm. if she can sort of will the world to bend to Blood Raina's desires, basically kind of how she sees it. So I thought that was like a really interesting, you know, it's kind of a an interesting flip because I think in earlier seasons, in like season one, season two, it that dynamic was a little bit reversed, you know? I mean, this is kind mm-hmm. of like a, a continuation of, it's a little bit of like of Lincoln in Clark here in that she's the one, she's like the character who knows the world who knows the layout and who is also kind of like, you know, more of a pacifist. By the way, Kara's, Kara, uh, Cooper's forehead tattoo. Yes, that's Lincoln's back That was Lincoln's back tattoo. Yes, that's right. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, Which is really interesting that there are still, and I think that same pattern was on one of the banners in the, um, in Mm -hmm. the arena. So it's interesting to Mm -hmm. me that there are still these sort of like commemorations of Lincoln in the iconography of the bunker and especially like the Bloodrena cult. Well, and particularly when juxtaposed with hearing Octavia say like, don't love anyone and then no one can hurt you. Exactly. I think when Octavia says that, and we can, we can come back to this because like, this is another piece of that sort of dismantling of the world of the grounder, you know, commander cult world building that I think is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, but like when Octavia says, if you don't love anybody, no one can hurt you. Like, I mean, like, first of all, kudos to Marie because, you know, she's able to sort of convey like the extent to which I feel like that is something. It's like a teaching that appeals to Octavia because she has so much profound pain. But I think it kind of is an interesting mm-hmm. with with all the like sort of callbacks to Lincoln. It seems like. In this, like, strange way, you know, like, this is kind of a way of commemorating him, but also sort of, like, locking her heart away. Like, so that she's like, I will, mm-hmm. I, n- I never want to experience that pain again. And so this is how she's she can yeah. do that, you know, basically, like, well, I loved him, and I lost him, and it was terrible. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, so like the way to not experience that again is to just never love anybody. And then it's also all sort of mixed up in this kind of like yeah. theory of leadership, basically, which says that that love is a kind of like strategic weakness as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the so the scene with with Octavia and everybody when they're looking at the maps, I thought was just a fascinating little the Octavia Clark power play and our and our, the beginnings of this sort of arc that we got over the whole episode building off of where the last one left off with the shakeup in Indra's role. I think yes. it really, really continues to be so interesting. I am so into the tension between her and Cooper. Um, like yes. that look yes. that Indra gave her when she said in that mm-hmm. first scene when she said Blitarena is right, and then later on when uh they're in the tent with the stomach worm guy and Cooper says I agree with Bladrena and um and Indra says surprise I'm like I'm yeah. I'm so I, I think it's like it's such a kind of like a subtle little way to sort of show again like this sort of there are cracks in this foundation mm-hmm. you know like Octavia doesn't want to see them she tries to shut shut it down you know like she's clearly aware um you know that like she can't brook dissent 
But Indra seems to be the only person who's allowed to speak truth to power, basically. Like, Indra's the only one who's allowed to basically be like, um, I don't know about this, you guys. That was really fascinating. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is like, we clearly appear headed for a real clash between those two. And and what I'm wondering is, depending on when in the season that falls, is it going to end up with Indra being the one that is pushed further out? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or is like Indra being injured at the end of this episode, potentially like, like, I don't think she's going to die, but like, if she almost dies, is that sort of shift Octavia a little bit, you know, and is Cooper like, so, so I'm just interested in like, I feel like there's potentially an explosive confrontation between the kind of two factions on either side of Octavia, you know, one of which is basically just Indra kind of isolated, but has the potential to, like, as we saw in the, um, skipping ahead to the, the preview for the next episode is that we see that when Dioza comes back to kind of try to parlay with one crew again, that she brings Kane with her. And so I, what I wonder is if potentially the, like, the Indra, the kind of moderating force side of it might pick up some new people. And is that going to sort of lead to a big blow up with the kind of the Cooper Gaia side? But I also do think that, like you said, that Cooper, her reaction to the idea of, you know, of the bodies being left behind, I think something that I felt like was really interesting there that made me wonder if we're going to end up in a, in a version of this where like the only real sort of true believer left is Gaia and even Cooper eventually kind of splits off is it's like they've all spent six years kind of in this existence where death is like so deeply tied into their religious practices, which have shaped their entire culture and Octavia deciding to leave bodies behind without Gaia performing funeral rites over them or, you know, you know, the ceremonial eating of them or whatever, like whatever the, like however the cannibalism or whatever feeds into it. But like death has these incredibly rigidly prescribed rituals. And, and I think that for Cooper to see Octavia willing to let people who died to protect her specifically let their bodies kind of lie there and just like cruise on without doing the thing, you know, that feels like that makes me wonder if we're sort of planting a little seed for maybe Cooper will eventually also flip and end up on Indra's side and it'll be them against Gaia, who I don't think is, you know, I mean, I think she's pretty, I think she's sad. I don't know, because, I mean, you know, remember Gaia is Indra's daughter, and we know from the trailer yeah. that, the, you know, there's a scene between um, Indra and Gaia where Indra mm-hmm. says, real warriors hate war, you know, like, so I think, I think, you know, the the sort of tension with Indra is going to extend to Gaia. And so, so I could, I could see it going the other way where Cooper is the kind of like only true believer left because mm. all Cooper has is belief. Gaia has sort of familial parental ties to Indra. And Octavia kind of does as well, you know, like Octavia, mm-hmm. Octavia loves Indra too. Yeah. And uh, even though she won't admit it, she also loves Indra. I don't know. She loves Cooper. Yeah. And Gaia loves Indra. So I could see it going the other way. Or, I mean, like, the other thing is, too, that you could wind up in a situation where everybody abandons Octavia. 
Which I think in some ways is the most interesting. Yeah. I mean, everybody except maybe Bellamy, <laughs> you know? Um, right. Because, and I think that there's a sort of, they did such like a really great job in this episode of showing how strong Octavia's hold is over one crew and how effective and thorough that hold is. But then all while also hanging out to how creepy it is. And so the fact that she can, because I think, so the other little bit of Cooper's sort of horror at leaving the bodies behind, I think, those 11 people, other than the one guy whose name I can never remember, um, who died from the worms, you know, 11 of them literally died because they were forming a human shield around Blood Raina. You know, they said, like, okay, now we have to p- protect Blood Raina. And none of them for a second questioned it. Because this is what you yeah. do, you know, like we all collectively, we like huddle together and like they're all protecting each other. Right. But like ultimately it was like it was around her. It was to protect her. So those are 11 people who who gave their lives for all. Right. Like they died to mm-hmm. save everyone. They died to save one crew, They did, you know, and to save Bladrena. And so for Octavia to sort of be like, just strip their bodies and leave them there. Kind of. It's pretty callous, you know, like they just died for you right. and and right. you're not even going to honor them at all. So it's like not even just that she's not performing the ritual. It's that she's not performing any ritual. Like they're just sort of like, oh, well, they were just cannon fodder, you know, right. which yeah. which goes against all of the dogma of one crew, you know, which is that like we all are mm-hmm. in this together. Every life matters. Blood Raina protects you, blah, blah, blah. And I thought it was also one, the one thing that was interesting about what... Octavia said to Bellamy at the end, you know, she said, like, if you ever speak out against one crew again, then you'll be the enemy of one crew and you'll be my enemy. There's a kind of like way in which it seems like because like he wasn't speaking out against one crew. He was speaking against Octavia. And so there's, I think there's a kind of like conflation of one crew with Octavia and Bloodrena, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. that Octavia seems to like totally buy. That I think I could see that coming back to bite her. Yeah, and this is the thing that I was really rooting for to happen with Octavia, and I and I'm excited that we're getting into it this early. Is now that they don't need a leader, but like now that they don't need to do exactly what she says because they're trapped in this bunker for potentially forever with no escape, and the situation was like so desperate, and her kind of tyrannical, you know, fanaticism, and and how tightly they held to all of these kind of codes of behavior. Even Kane admits like it did work, like it did hold them together through a really dark time. Yeah. You can make the argument that during the dark year, Octavia becoming this person was what they needed to keep, you know, as many of them alive as possible. But now that they don't. Even Clark in this episode says, Yeah. You know, it's kind of beautiful. Like, I see why my mom was terrified of this. But that sort of like unity and coherence and sort of belief in this all one of us for all of us or all of us for one of us or whatever dogma, there's like something kind of like impressive and beautiful about it. You know, And I I like that because it's, you know, it's like a weird gladiator death cult, but it's not like presented in a way where this is completely evil and you can't understand why anybody would ever buy into it. Right, right. There are elements of it that are kind of like beautiful and appealing that have a certain power that make it possible to do things that otherwise wouldn't be possible. But that moment really stuck out to me when Clark said that, beyond my feelings about Blark having conversations about their feelings, (laughs) 
because I thought that was a nice, like, that kind of sort of picked up on the themes about religion and belief and faith that we've been talking about over the last few episodes that have seems they're sort of like subtle, but they're there. You know, this is another moment where it's like, this is a ritual, it's a prayer, it's a group of people who are held together by a set of common beliefs. And there's immense power to that. And a potential for immense beauty and potential for immense darkness, you know, all at once and kind of always there in that level of belief. I, what I found about what was sort of chilling, I think, in some ways about that moment is that like, we can see exactly what Clark sees, which is there's something really, really wonderful in the fact that, you know, Clark can look at it and be like, she did what she was supposed to do. You know, like she like it was hard, but she like held them together. You know, I think the dark underbelly to that, that I think is sort of foreshadowed is that I think it seems pretty clear that like all of me for all of of us if cannibalism is a thing that happened in the dark here that very much seems like a Gaia invented prayer for the person about to be eaten to feed the masses mm. that was like my sort of interpretation of like the origin of those words is much more gruesome yeah or like I mean even without cannibalism you know that's the prayer that they say yeah. for the fights to the death in the arena so it's still the yeah same yeah sort of, you know it's like it's a prayer invented to teach people to think that their lives are always sacrificed to the group unquestioningly it's there to kind of bend people not to fight back against that system you know what i mean so like yeah so there's like a kind of deep sinister quality to it but again it's not without wasn't without its purpose and it's exactly very, very yeah powerful. you know it, it does make it's possible to get out of like some tough situations that you might not otherwise be able to get out of both in this episode and then also in the six years. And so exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's just like, it's really cool. And sort of like, I like that they're kind of we're hanging out in that kind of weird, uncomfortable gray area. And we're like, definitely in the we're like in the darker gray end of the spectrum, for sure, you know, but still, you know, it's not just like, oh, my God, evil cult. It's just sort of like, that's a very sinister cult, but it also just kind of helps explain, like, you can sort of connect the dots about how someone like Miller wound up going with it. And not just purely out of fear of what happens if you step out of line, although that is certainly a part of it, but also how you as a person can be sort of persuaded by that culture to kind of internalize it. Yeah, and I think it's just, it's just, it's interesting to me. And th that was the moment where I, where I thought it was sort of the most visible, but kind of all the way through the episode, both from Bellamy and from Clark, to see how this looks to outside eyes who don't know, even as much as we know, let alone all the stuff that even we don't know yet about kind of how they got there. Clark's outside perspective on what she's seeing is a really interesting kind of counterpoint to you know, like, you know, we're, we're sort of in the middle. Like we know more than Clark, but less than Octavia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I find that kind of that position as an audience member is really interesting where there's things where we can see what they're seeing and kind of the outside perspective on it. And yeah, and that there is, there's definitely visible pluses and minuses, but I do feel like watching over the course of the episode, as they sort of realize just how unreachable the Octavia they remember is inside of Blood Reina. Mm -hmm. They're both so sure, I, th I think, from the beginning, that this persona is something that Octavia can kind of take on and off. 
you know, yeah. like that she has to be this person in front of her people, but that like, that like surely at some other point she'll drop this, we'll be able to get through to her, you know, and, yeah. and they keep trying and trying. And so that's something where, I, and I think that, you know, at the end it's, that's illuminated pretty clearly in that moment between, between her and Bellamy, but it's fascinating watching, you know, watching the two of them watch her all the way throughout and all the different, you know, things that they try, you know, like Clark just assuming that people will let her through to, you know, check out a medical emergency, you know, and, ha- and so, and having to like persuade Octavia to let her try and save somebody's life mm-hmm. and having to persuade Octavia that she's the person who, you know, who knows the sandstorm situation and even though Octavia doesn't listen and it turns out that Clark was right and 12 people die because Clark was right and Octavia didn't listen that she still doesn't like she still is responding like blood Reina who can't admit fault and can't show any kind of vulnerability or you know or humanity so it's just it was fascinating to me watching them realize that this isn't like a costume that Octavia puts on yeah that Octavia I think you know the the really creepy thing to me or like disturbing thing to me about Blood Reina, you know, Octavia's Blood Reina is that like, <laughs> like she has a God complex and she believes in it, you know, like when yes. she's talking yes. about walking across that desert and Clark is saying like, look, here are the very real, like massive climactic obstacles that you are going to run into, like namely shards of glass flying through the air. So you can't just march across the desert. Nature will not let you do this. And Octavia is just like, we're fucking doing it. Nothing's going to stop me, including nature. And I think it's not even yeah. so much like, you know, with, with her reaction to the sandstorm later, you know, when she's, when she's fighting with Bellamy and Bellamy's like trying to talk to her, like she's a person and she's responding like, you better watch yourself. And then also, you know, now you'll understand one crew. It's obvious that Octavia doesn't have any respect for nature. She doesn't think that nature is is more powerful than she is. And to some extent, she's correct because she can literally be insulated from nature by one crew. Right. (laughs) Which actually like that moment was like, it was really cool, but it also kind of made me laugh because I just kept thinking about like, you know how like penguin colonies all huddle together in blizzards? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, they're like penguins. They're like huddled like penguins in a blizzard, except for instead of like rotating <laughs> penguins in and out so everybody gets to be warm for a little while only Octavia gets to be warm uh, <laughs> I am going to title this segment Octavia would be a terrible penguin <laughs> yes as you should Octavia Blake the worst emperor penguin <laughs> Uh. <laughs> but yeah, so like she she clearly has this kind of sense of herself as being all powerful. And that over the six years, it feels like this is just, you know, extended beyond just being all powerful because she has like total political control in that bunker and more of a just sort of like, I am impervious, <laughs> you know, like I am blood radar. Right, right. I do not fall, which is I think why, you know, there's all these little sort of jarring moments, you know, obviously one of them for Bellamy is the moment when he tries to just like 
walk towards her in that cold open and everybody pulls guns on her Mm -hmm. like you don't get to go near her you know he has a little check-in moment with Clark where he's like I think they actually were going to kill me and Clark is like uh yes yeah (laughs) but then even when when Octavia gets the sandworm in her arm there's that moment when they're like tying off the tourniquet and like Clark is about to cut her open and Bellamy's kind of kneeling there holding her hand saying like don't worry I'm here I'm here I've got this and I just remember watching that scene thinking like him saying that felt so out of place. Octavia wasn't really paying attention to him. You know, she wasn't like, you you know, she was just kind of like screaming, get this thing out of me. I think I sort of read that as intentionally being like, Bellamy is having a moment with his little sister who has uh-huh. this thing inside of her that could kill her. And he's trying to say like, it's going to be okay because I'm here. And Blood Rain is like, get this motherfucking thing out of me because I have fucking shit to deal with. Like, she's not... Yeah. That's not Octavia, the little sister, responding in any way. That's Blood Reina. One thing that makes me... That made me very emotional in this episode that, that makes me, like, sort of... So, like, sort of bittersweet to think about is that in this episode, the only person who is able to penetrate that Blood Reina armor and touch... Octavia is Indra. The only moment we see that Mm -hmm. mask drop is when Indra says, you know, they have that conversation where Indra says, your brother loves you. And she says, love is weakness. And then Indra says, I love you. And then you can, that's like the moment when you can see (sighs) Octavia falter. Yeah. Like that's Octavia, you know, like that's like Indra, like effectively called her bluff there. You know, like Octavia can, Octavia can pretend that she doesn't love her brother and that it doesn't, you know, she can kind of like shut off that part of her that slipped through for a second when she first saw him. But it seems like Indra still has that kind of like direct line to her heart. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, and I think that's what's interesting about that other than just how heart shattering it was to hear Indra just say that, I know. you know, I was like, Oh my God. It was just a beautiful moment. Indra's like the best mom in the universe, you know? She's like... Oh, my God. I love her so much. Like, she will not tolerate your bullshit. You know, she will not, like, play along. She will call you out, but lovingly, you know, like, she will remind you, I love you, and this is not who you are. Like, Indra is the best, and she better stay okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> she's... Yeah, she's the best. And and she was so... Like, I... You know, the the increasing complication we've been getting over the course of this season, even just in the three episodes that she's been in so far of how, you know, how her relationship with Octavia is shifting and changing, you know, I think is so fascinating. But what I, what I thought was so, was so devastating about, you know, the implications of that conversation, that moment between them and, and Octavia, you know, like not really having a sort of snappy dismissive comeback to like, like you seeing, seeing that she is, sort of visibly discomfited by Indra saying that because she can't... She can't say, I don't love you. She can't you. tell Indra that she's weak. You know, like it... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, to me, part of the implication of, like, the subtext of, of what Octavia means when she says that is, like, Octavia feels like love has made her weak. You know, like, she yeah. doesn't... She doesn't see Indra as weak. And, you know, she knows Indra loves her daughter. Like, I feel like when she says this, she means herself. Yeah. You know, she she means, I feel like the times in my life when I was weak and the person I don't want to be anymore and the person that I'm hiding from inside this sort of Blood Reina persona, it's because when I care about people, I let myself get hurt because people will die or betray you or leave 
or abandon you or whatever. That's sort of Octavia's way of saying not not so much like it's kind of a general worldview, you know, like like when Lexa said it, it was part of a like, this is the system in which I have grown up, of which this is a core teaching, and this is just kind of how you know, and it's borne out by things that happen to her, like with Costia and stuff. But it was also like a lifelong teaching. I think for Octavia, it's something that she has grabbed onto because it's a way of justifying what she wanted to do anyway, which is to stop feeling things. Mm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so it gives her, you know, like it's a, it's a teaching that she's absorbed from Gaia that gives her permission to do what she already wanted to do. Putting Lincoln's tattoos all over the place as an insignia, as though Lincoln is in any way properly being commemorated by this like vicious blood cult <laughs> that she started. You know, it's like, like she can, she can tell herself that she's honoring him. She can tell herself that, you know, Lincoln's vision of unity is somehow present in this, but she doesn't have to actually feel anything mm-hmm. or have an emotional reaction to anything because she's like, well, you know, this love is weakness things. You know, this, this all checks out. So I think what's interesting about both Indra and Bellamy is the ways in which she just like, you know, in, in different ways, like she just, she cannot receive the emotion or the experience of love from anybody. You know, like she doesn't quite know what to do when Indra says it because it's so sort of wildly out of character for Indra to just sort of like make that kind of a declaration and she's totally caught off guard by it. And she does know that's what it is with Bellamy and that's the thing of why she's pushing him away. You know, like she can't, like it's not something that she can let herself respond to but it's dangerous to sort of like let it get too, too close to her. And Gaia and Cooper, you know, who are people who give her like allegiance and devotion, which is different from like loving her because loving her implies like that everyone who remembers when Octavia was a person, mm-hmm. you know, and they're all, and that makes all those people super, super dangerous. You know, the same thing that happened kind of with Kane and Indra, just because of their relationship and because of her sort of stature and her role in Octavia's life can sort of get away with these things in a way that the others can't. I think that just the fear, the fear that you see in Octavia's face when somebody says, I love you and just sort of like quietly disproves her entire thesis about, you know, like love being bad. It's like, I think that's a reminder that like when she says that, she means like she herself can't handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, like she can't let herself go there again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. She has to, in order to keep going, she has to sort of keep that part of herself locked away. And I think the only reason that or the only way that Octavia can do that is by telling herself, by like trying to believe that that is true, you know, to try to sort of believe yeah, that, yeah. that dogma and to convince herself that what she's feeling is not love per se. But I think, you know, I think that's why, you know, that lovely moment when uh, Indra says to Bellamy, I'm glad you're here, mm-hmm. is that I think Indra is hoping that Bellamy is another person who will be able to get to Octavia. You know, like Indra has been the only person maybe who has been able to kind of hang on to that actual human connection, you know? Um, and I, th- I feel like she's hoping that Bellamy might be able to do it too. And I sort of wonder if something like that happened with Nyla too, that Octavia wound up pushing Nyla away because Nyla is also a person who's like a feelingsy sort of person, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and who will try to help Octavia access her feelings. And that, you know, like over time would quickly become a huge liability for Bladrena, you know? So I could see, yeah, I could see Nyla having wound up 
kind of, you know, like maybe not on the outs. On the outs, yeah. yeah, like sort of on the outskirts, like a little bit of a, a sort of pariah, like having to keep her head down sort of thing. Because Octavia was basically like, I can't have you around being all like, tell me how you feel, Octavia, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and especially because like, you know, the like one of the really key moments from Nyla we got in the last episode that we saw her in, you know, was connected to the book, which is connected to Bellamy. So Nyla is not just a person who, who kind of has a gift for like drawing out, like reading and then drawing out people's emotional responses. Like, and like we've seen her do so many times with Clark, but she also knows Octavia's relationship with her brother very well Mm -hmm. you know and kind of from from both sides and also from observing it you know and so I think that much like with Kane you know I think that's a that's a thing that makes her dangerous to have around because you know Octavia the person Octavia the little sister Octavia the like vulnerable human being is, you know, is somebody that Blood Reina needs to kind of keep locked up and put away. And so, you know, like, I think Nyla's too savvy to, like, she wouldn't do what Bellamy did, which is kind of, like, challenge Octavia directly, like, in front of people. You know, like, Nyla wouldn't do anything that's sort of with that level of kind of, like, political cluelessness. But (laughs) I could see her, you know, making herself into a person who, even if she never says anything directly, like, Octavia would sort of know, like, I see the way you're watching me. Like, I, like, I see, I see how I'm being seen by you and it makes me uncomfortable like, and I don't hey, want to see that yeah, anymore. Yeah. Which actually, this makes me want, like, sort of hope even more that Nyla winds up being the person, like, Bellamy and Clark and maybe Space Crew find Nyla and she's the one who tells them the story of what happened, you know, like, so, <laughs> so she can be like, what all started when I gave her Ovid. <laughs> <laughs> this is technically my fault. <laughs> but really yours, Bellamy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You gotta stop telling little girls bedtime stories because when you do, murder happens. Yeah, it always ends up going wrong. They're never listening to what you're trying to say. (laughs) Exactly. They always wind up somehow going like, so what I really need to do is kill. (laughs) Ooh, uh, speaking of characters we haven't seen in a little while that are connected to Octavia, where do you think Ethan is? Oh, good question. (laughs) Maybe Nyla is the nursery keeper, whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she and Gaia are like good babysitter, bad babysitter. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I imagine he's just in the bunker, you know, because like not everybody went on the march across the That's true, yeah. I think Jackson stayed behind with the wounded. And so I imagine that, and, and Gaia stayed behind too. So I imagine that he's, he's probably with Gaia. Like it's because it seems like he's yeah, that's true. Acolyte. I am very curious to see Ethan meet Maddie. Uh, yes, that will be that will be interesting. Me too. Yeah, because they're right around the same age, and he is like not a nightblood, but is being sort of given the status of one in many ways. You know, like like being called a novitiate officially. Yeah, and she has the genetics, but doesn't want the gig. Yeah, that's the other actually the other thing about that love is weakness callback between Indra and Octavia was that moment. You know, when when Octavia says it and. Indra 
Indra says, you must have, what would she say? I had hoped. Like another one of Gaia's teachings. I hope she was past this yes, nonsense by yes, now yes, or something yes. like that. Yeah. Which tells, I mean, I think that's an interesting little tidbit that Gaia hasn't completely left behind all of those aspects of the commander cult. Mm-hmm. That she is kind of like, that there are elements of that that are carrying over and sort of like beliefs or dogma from that that she has injected into this Bloodraina cult. And that really makes me wonder what Gaia's reaction is going to be upon meeting Maddie. If she Mm -hmm. has not entirely surrendered all of those beliefs. I mean, and I could see it going, honestly, I could see, I'm like 50-50, I could see it going either way. I could see her either being like, oh my God, a real nightblood and being like actually experiencing some real conflict about what to do about that. And I could also kind of see her like perceiving Maddie as a threat to what she has built And a threat also in a kind of like in a more personal psychological way of like, here's this sort of like avatar of all the things you used to believe that you've sort of disavowed offering itself to kind of go back. So I could see Gaia either being like, cool, a nightblood, she could be a commander or her being like, come, I will teach you. And then someday you and Ethan can have a conclave. Or Gaia (laughs) being like, nightblood means that all those grounders, you know, who are now one crew who haven't forgotten all that ground of that commander stuff they were taught, you know, like this little girl is a threat, is an enemy of one crew because she is a threat to Bloodraina and then wanting to kill her. I could honestly see it going either way. And obviously Clark's going to be like not down with that either way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, and that that's kind of what I was thinking, too, is like, I'm, you know, similar, like, kind of to wait. Oh, my God. Yeah, your cat is my like, cat. <laughs> your cat is actively engaged in this conversation. Everybody say hello to Oliver. <laughs> Oliver has been fucking Hi, fed. I gave him additional food, so I don't know why he's in here yelling at me. He probably just wants attention. Aww. Aww. But like, yeah, I, I think what's interesting to me about Maddie and and how she could potentially overlap with um with Gaia and the whole kind of like power structure is like if they're grooming if they're grooming Ethan to be Octavia's successor essentially. Yeah. Like if that's what novitiate means. Right. Then I, yeah, then I think that there are some real questions to be asked about whether Gaia and Octavia fear and whether that fear is, you know, is grounded, pun intended, I guess, whether the existence of another nightblood would cause like I think anything that might potentially risk one crew remembering who they used to be. In that same yes, way, like remembering exactly, how, exactly, yeah. you know, how things used to be, even if they're still, if it doesn't like dismantle the entire kind of, it doesn't erase the six years that they spent sort of becoming one clan. The question of succession gets really interesting because it's yeah. like, like everyone follows Blood Rain up. That's a given for now. But the open question on the table is what happens if something happens to Blood Rain Exactly. And if they've got a non-Nightblood a sky crew kid who was, you know, who was brought in by, you know, by Jaha. And he's been the one who's been getting all of the, you know, like the proper training, you know, like then it becomes sort of like, like almost like a nature versus nurture thing. Mm. Like you have the kid who has been getting all of this sort of training in, in their beliefs, you know, as these beliefs have kind of been codified by Gaia, who would rule, you know, after Octavia died, who would actually rule like as, as an extension of Blood Raina, you know, would follow the sort of same set of beliefs. Or, you know, you have somebody who doesn't know any of that, doesn't particularly want any of that, is not part of one crew in any way, is a complete outsider, and yet has the genetic thing that, you know, used to be what we use to determine if somebody was leadership material, this other kid does not. 
So I feel like how hard she is working to not remember or, you know, or allow that other past sort of pre-bunker self that she was to enter into the picture. I think one way in which she kind of is like an avatar of one crew and they sort of are the same is that like collectively, I think, you know, I think so many of them are also doing that. And that's why I feel like people like Nyla and Kane end up, you know, and even Indra end up outliers because they are less willing to leave behind their old selves than somebody like Kara Cooper, who has completely transformed, you know, because she had nothing. She didn't have any, like she lost her husband she lost her family you know she got spared in that first conclave that you know created the beginnings of this bond at the end of six years you know she's like you know one of octavia's like right hand men because she didn't have another self that she sort of desired to go back to the way like kane abby jackson nyla people like that aren't so willing to voluntarily shed their entire identities and pasts and relationships to become sort of like a homogenous member of this whole, which requires that you sort of cease to exist as the person that you were before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, like they don't, they don't actually, we, or at least as far as we know, they don't have a, a fixed succession or we don't know the terms of their succession. It used to be fairly set. Like you could only, if you only if you were Nightblood, could you be in line and then they would all Highlander each other and, you know, <laughs> and then the winner was the leader. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's possible that we'll find out that there's like a whole nursery of children and now just all children. Oh, somebody, somebody said, oh, Dioza said it to Kane. Like they're all, you know, he said like there we have doctors and engineers and whatever. Um, and Dioza said, and every last one of them is trained to fight, including the children. Yeah, which I'd officially interpret that as meaning like parents, you know, like everybody just taught their children to fight because like who knows when you're going to wind up in the arena. So you have to be able to fight in order to right, right, yeah. take care of surviving. Yeah. Like if Gaia hasn't left behind the commander stuff entirely, it sort of does beg the question like, is Ethan the only novitiate? Are there other novitiates? Are they going to have to have a conclave right. at some point? Like, Is there going to be a conclave and they're going to throw Maddie in it? And that's what that Octavia Maddie scene from the trailer is? Oh, my God. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, we know that Maddie is a badass. Like, so, okay. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want her to kill. No. I don't want, to, I don't want Maddie to have to I kill. I don't want it. Like, I'm yeah. sure Maddie doesn't want it. I mean, like, that is literally what she yeah. was hiding from, which is I'm sure how that's going to come mm-hmm. back. You know, like, obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whole yeah. whole backstory is the giant like hey your whole thing was fucked up to the commander stuff although it will be fascinating to watch you know how that how that plays well especially since maddie you know we've already seen maddie pushing back on clark a bunch of times Mm -hmm. when clark is sort of like i have no choice but to do this violent thing or to kill these people and maddie's like but do you do you but don't you really do you do have a choice and you're choosing to do this I could sort of see something like that happening, you know, where they're pushing Maddie to, where she winds up in a situation where, like, she's either being about to be forced to fight or they're sort of pushing her towards that. And she winds up being kind of the voice of reason, you know, the voice of sort of, like, peace or the or the, or the voice of questioning, like, the one to kind of be like, okay, but it doesn't really have to be like this. Yeah. Which would be one, like, it, that would be wonderful. I mean... What, what could possibly be more destabilizing to Blood Reina's rule than having a, like a, a real ass actual nightblood kid, you know, come in and say like, this system is bullshit. We don't have to be like this anymore. That makes her an incredibly powerful. Yeah. Threat. Like she, yeah. she would speak with a lot of credibility. Yeah. You yeah. know, which is why I feel like the threat if, to her is going to be more 
the adults, whether it's Gaia or even Cooper, kind of being like, mm-hmm. we got to get rid of this kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something else I think I think ties into that that I think is interesting is in an episode that was so much about the darkest kind of most inhuman side of Blood Reina, I think it was interesting how many little markers we got to remind us how Octavia reveres her. You mean Maddie reveres Octavia? Yeah. You know, like, not just, like, the moment where she's, you know, she's talking to them in the car, and she tells Murphy, you know, like, Octavia's my favorite. Yeah. Um, but also the little the little moment with the drawing at the beginning where we, you know, we got, like, a little check back in with the Octavia drawing that we know is, you know, it was lying on Maddie's bed. Mm, yeah, good you know, point. Yeah. That, you know, like, like Maddie, Maddie keeps the Octavia drawing on her bed with her stuff. Yeah. Like, I think that's significant. Yeah, no, you're totally right. So, like, I mean, I think... I think they're sort of setting up for that hero worship to really come to a head you know like maddie's gonna have to like she's gonna have to reckon with it because i i think i think it wasn't a coincidence that we got those like little little check-in reminders from maddie and about maddie that like just how wide the gap is between sky Ripa, the sort of like the myth that maddie adores like Sky Ripa and Blood Reina are not the same. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's super hyped about Sky Ripa. Like that mythological persona of Octavia is like incredibly compelling to her. But Blood Reina, who let 12 people die to protect her and kind of was like, meh, let's just move on. Like Maddie <laughs> would not. Maddie would not stand for that. Yeah. So that made me feel like part of what we're setting up in kind of however things evolve next is like, I'm really interested in a version of this story where we have to watch Maddie reckon with Octavia disappointing her. Like Octavia not being the hero that Maddie has wanted for six years to believe that she was, like being a person who Maddie's like, I can't understand why you would do that. Like, I can't understand why you would make that choice. Like, that's not heroic. That's selfish. Like, and maybe that's something that becomes a moment of realization for Octavia that seeing, you know, seeing herself through Maddie's eyes opens her up a little bit to kind of understanding, maybe seeing who she's become. I don't know. But I but I think for Maddie, certainly, and for Clark, for both of their sort of arcs over the course of the season, I think watching watching the reality of Blood Reina kind of crash into Maddie's hero worship of Skyripa is going to be very fraught, I think. Oh, yes, I think so, too. I think it's going to be... Seems like it'll be devastating. Yeah. And exciting. Devastating in the best possible way. (laughs) (laughs) So do we want to talk about the icky worm things and what the hell is going on there? And yes, speculation. Very much so. So (laughs) one, first of all, gross. (laughs) (laughs) So gross. It took me, I, it took me until my, like, the, my first rewatch, I couldn't look directly at it. Like, I saw the thing pop out and I was like, closed my, like, I think, I think I was like on my third rewatching through of that scene before I finally was like, okay, I have to make myself look and like, see what these things are and what's (laughs) happening. But it was so, oh my God. It was nasty. I have to say, Clark said something about there still being venom in uh in Octavia which I'm very curious about. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Cooper said something about eggs. So I do like I 
feel like we're definitely not done with the worm things. Agreed. And obviously, like, the fact that one of them was in Octavia feels like it's going to come back. And I'm sort of curious about, like, I'm curious about the Venom thing in particular, because that felt sort of, like, very, I don't know, metaphorical, you know what I mean? Or sort of, like, I don't know, there's Venom in Octavia. I thought so, too. And and here's, here's why that moment leaped out at me, is that... The moment where they said the venom is still in there, and I forget, I cannot now remember what it is that Octavia says next, but whatever it was came out in some fucking, like, exorcist demon voice. Yeah, no, it did. It did. It totally did. Yeah. So, so that like pinged in my, in my brain where I was like, not like I think that we're in a, we're in a sci-fi realm where like the venom is going to turn her into like a super villain, <laughs> but it made me like, it just made that moment sort of land with me where I was like, oh wow. Like she is definitely yeah. like feeling kind of demon possessed. Yeah. Like it makes me sort of wonder if like, okay, if, it, if Octavia gets like crazier and crazier, you know, like she gets like more and more kind of like extreme and out there as the season goes on like there's a sort of question in the back of my mind of like all right is it because like the venom has a weird like psychoactive quality Mm. you know yeah but i was also thinking about because like the worm things have got to come back right like i feel like yeah oh yeah yeah they're gonna be like they're gonna they're gonna be a thing they're gonna be like relevant somehow and i was trying to figure out how and i thought like another sort of like wild off the wall theory that occurred to me which is sort of like this week theorizing after like after this week when all of my previous theories were totally blown to shit i'm just sort of like (laughs) i'll just theorize time for some new ones time to make some new ones that will also be blown to shit (laughs) in uh in a short order but i'm i i hope that they provide entertainment for the writers when they hear them <laughs> uh the, so the other one that i thought of was okay so clark has never encountered these things before right and she's she knows enough about the desert to know the like patterns of the winds you know so like she obviously hasn't spent a lot of time there but like she spent a fair amount of time like a couple of months you know sort of like wandering around that area and so i'm sort of wondering if like another way that I thought that they could come back and something uh, that could sort of like potentially tie into the end of season twist is like what if they wind up being like wind up being like a plague of locusts invasive species sort of thing like so they get to the like they're all fighting over Eden but then like basically like the worm things take over and they have to flee earth oh so like at the end like everybody has to leave earth yeah and like go to wherever the place, you know, the rock or whatever the place that Legius was because, because Earth has gotten... Because the only thing that kills the the worms is fire. And if they burn down Eden, then Eden is no use to them anyway. Exactly. Ooh. Yeah. God, that's dark and interesting. I like that. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was my other like, oh, huh. Environmental sort of like instead of like oh we lost the war and we have to leave or whatever it's like ev- humanity gets driven out because basically like there is a new dominant species that is that is taking over Earth and is ma- making even that last patch uninhabitable. I like that. I had that. I had that had not occurred to me at all. I was more thinking. My sort of thoughts about how if they were going to come back had more to do with trying to remember if we ever saw what happened to 
the one that they captured in the jar. Oh, that was yeah. Octavia. No, I think they kept that. Yeah, so that, so I, I was more thinking like now that they know that those things are, are there and the impact that they have and Eligius doesn't know about them. Ah. They become something. It's like a sort of biological warfare thing. Yeah, like, like a trap or a weapon. You know, do they end up trying to like, lure Eligius people into the desert on foot to trap them? Do they end up trying to, like, you or use the one that they have in some way? Yeah, I just, like, re- trying to release that on Dioza or something, or... Yeah, or does it become, like, a like a no-man's land kind of thing where it's, like, you know, once Eligius figures out that they are there, you know, then it's, like, there's sort of, like, impassable territory. So, like, so I just was sort of, yeah, I was thinking of it more, like, how could this knowledge that they have that these creatures exist and are deadly and disgusting. You, how could, like, Octavia, who's always kind of trying to flag things to, like, use as leverage to bolster her power, use this information? Uh, I think there's also an outside possibility that the worm that they have winds up being useful in a different way. Like, with the reference to Venom... I wonder if that might wind up being, like, based on what happens to Octavia, they figure out that, like, the weird sandworm venom is the thing that, like, Abby needs to cure the miners, or it's, like, something really weird like that. Like, there's a property to that venom that winds up being relevant. I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, like, in, you mean, like, developing anti-venom kind of thing? Uh, anti-venom or even something else. Just, like, I don't know. Like, if these guys do have cancer, how the hell is Abby supposed to do chemo, right? Like, what if it sort of... I don't know, sort of become something like I, I mean I'm just I'm just sort of spitballing but like like basically if the if this is a creature that like releases a chemical how might that chemical become relevant I like the idea of like a Clark and Abby science badass team up storyline mm, yes yes and we know that at some point and maybe it happens in the next even couple episodes but Clark comes back like we've seen BTS shots of Abby Clark and McCreary in that house-turned-medical facility setting. Yes. So Clark does come back. And Space Crew does, too. I mean, we've seen, because, like, yeah. we shot her with, like, uh, Veliza with Tazia Tellis in there. And so, yeah, so they definitely do come back to that space. I, yeah, I like, I'm, I'm sort of, mo- I'm thinking this out loud, which is why I'm very rambly. But, like, I li- <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of Clark and Abby teaming up and potentially figuring out, like, is there a way to, you know, like, do the sandworms turn out to have some kind of medical utility to Abby in terms of, like, I mean, even if it's just for something as simple as, like, testing, you know, like, some, I don't know, thing that she's doing, testing it on the worms first, for a, like, or, I don't know, but, like, I like if the it's idea. Like a, if they're, like, a, a weird mutated, like, leech, if they have, like, an anticoagulant mm-hmm. or something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like, if they could de-venom it, but they could use the thing to, like, suck out the, po- yeah, I don't know. So, so there's, there's all kinds of gross, wonderful possibilities for like a, a you know a mom daughter science storyline that would involve some kind of crazy banana pants you know thing with these like gross morphed slugs. So yeah, I'm into that. <laughs> I'm definitely into the into the horror movie kind of side of it. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so before we move on from this group of people, we have to have a nice long chat about how much. 
Belark stuff there was in this episode because like <laughs> I was not prepared. Like last week I was prepared because, you know, like Jason said, Oh, there's a hug and we knew that they were gonna be like actually like fully reuniting for the first time and so I was like, All right, yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be so so much stuff. And this week I was kind of expecting I was like, All right, last week was like the big thing and this week I wasn't expecting anything. But they actually talked. They talked so many times. Yeah. It was amazing. Conversations about feelings and like who they are now. I was like, what? What? Oh my God. It was like, yeah. No, it was like, it was like season one quality. It was like, they were on a mission together. The thing that I like about their relationship, you know, in like in seasons one and season two, they're in a situation where it's like the two of them are united in the way that they're looking at this situation, which is different from how everyone else is seeing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for Bellamy just to have the reassurance that somebody else is seeing what he sees when he looks at Octavia. Yeah. yeah. and, And for Clark to have the reassurance that somebody else sees what she sees when she's looking at like I'm still trying to figure out why my mom was so freaked out by these people you know <laughs> like that they both are kind of like this whole thing is so weird and really unsettling and we don't recognize this version of Octavia and we sort of feel this real sense of like creeping unease about this whole dynamic that they have somebody else to like process that with was like like you felt that relief from oh that. yeah mm-hmm. like if only one of them had been there you would have been I mean like partly just for the audience and it, you know like if it had been just Clark then we don't have a way for Clark to sort of verbally process for us the audience exactly how she feels about what she's seeing and vice versa the same for Bellamy but having the two of them together with a kind of you know mind meld that they get in these situations you felt that sense of oh thank god yeah yeah <laughs> thank god you're here to like so I know that I'm not crazy because I'm like this is fucking weird <laughs> well and I thought it was like I mean in the way that they kind of very deftly skated the line between powerful and impressive things about one crew versus really fucking creepy, sinister things about it. I mean, I think they also did, like, Mm -hmm. there was a very, very, like, nuanced kind of balanced job also of showing, on the one hand, Bellamy and Clark are, like, partners again, like you were saying. But when Clark is sort of storming after Miller, being like, hang on, talk Mm -hmm. to me, Bellamy is instantly, like, follows along. Like, he's instantly sort of with her. Yeah. When she demands to talk to Octavia, you know, Bellamy's right in there after Clark saying, like, you have to listen to, you know, listen to what we have to say. So he's saying like, we, us, you know, mm-hmm. so there's a kind of like, they're back in that sort of, they're not co-leaders, obviously, because they're not leading this group, but they're sort of partners. Like they're together, like they're going through this together and they have each other to kind of process it with. Um, so you get that kind of like older dynamic. But on the other hand, you also get like all of these little reminders, both in their conversations and I think also in just their sort of demeanor, those moments of hesitance to kind of remind us, you know, it's, on the one hand, you can see how automatically they slip back into their sort of, oh, hey, there's a partner. All right, here we go you know like they that's mm-hmm. still like that's so ingrained you know it's so automatic but on the other hand they still are getting to know each other again you know like bellamy is just barely mm-hmm. he's known that clark is still alive for like maybe 48 hours so he's like mm-hmm. still sort of getting used to the fact that she is actually she actually exists you know and clark is still getting to know the bellamy who came back down who is not the bellamy that she has been you know that she spent six years uh, talking to on the radio or quite the one that she remembered or the one that she imagined and so you get those like kind of little moments of of hesitation where at the beginning when octavia sort of like storms off and is like we're doing this and indra says there's a couple of packs here you can see sort of clark's hesitation of what are we going to do and bellamy says well i have to go after miller or, or murphy and raven and you can kind of see a moment for clark a little bit of like okay like 
but what do I do? You know, right. Bellamy kind of says, grabs her pack and is like, oh, uh, you know, what could go wrong with this? So like Bellamy kind of gets to the point where he like, he assumes like, and obviously you're coming with me, but there's a moment of like, okay, his priorities aren't quite her priorities. He's got to right, go get right. his friends and they're her friends too, but they're not her people in the same way. So there's a little bit of distance. And you know, that happens again, you know, in the, in the conversation in the tent when she's, you know, she points out that Bellamy has changed. You know, she's sort of like observing, you're, you're mm-hmm. not the same Bellamy you know you're not the same guy who went up and like in a good way you know in the in a way where like she sort of points out yeah yeah here are all these things that you've done that are great that are wonderful you know like you've done amazing things in the two days that you've been back you know but they're not necessarily exactly the decisions that she would have expected a Bellamy of six years ago to make mm-hmm. so I, I really I like the way that like the balance they managed to strike between showing that they're still together, you know, like they're still like pretty joined at the hip here, you know, like Mm -hmm. when Clark like storms out of the tent, Bellamy follows and vice versa, you know, like they're still in this together. They still have this sort of unspoken connection. When Clark says, you know, what does your head say about two armies fighting over the last green space in the world? And Bellamy says, same thing as yours, you know, like they have that kind of like automatic sort of connection and understanding. But at the same time with this sort of really palpable awareness of the distance of time mm-hmm. between them. And for Clark, it's just time. For Bellamy, it's actually having, like, mourned her and accepted that she was gone and lived his life on the basis that she was gone and never returning, which is, mm-hmm. like, a completely different thing from, like, sort of counting down the days. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Never really letting herself believe that he was never coming back. So I really liked how well they did that. It's like with the reunion at the end of 503. <laughs> like, I never fucking expected... We got one conversation, the one at the fire, you know, by the campfire, mm-hmm. which, like, okay, sitting by the campfire, you know, like, having a little conversation about how weird but impressive one crew is. And then my friend Elizabeth Elizabeth, who was on the Blark podcast last week, Clark says, you know, when Clark is like, that's, you know, it's pretty, that's, it's kind of cool what they were able to do. And Bellamy is like, uh, is it? Um, <laughs> and Clark says, you know, it is impressive. And Bellamy says, you know, it's also impressive to survive alone. Like, my friend Elizabeth mm-hmm. was like, that is the most, like, it's beautiful, so are you moment, like, ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting by the firelight, you know, with, like, soft music, he's, like, staring at her, like, reflecting on, like, you're so amazing for having survived alone. How did you do it? And then that hesitance that she has in saying, you know, well, I wasn't alone. And you can see her, I think. You can see her thinking about telling him. I totally thought that she was about to say, like, I, I had you. Yeah. And then she kind of tags in, like, Maddie was there. We're going to baby step into this thing. But, like, I completely mm-hmm. was like, oh, she's going to say it. And then she, she didn't say it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, that long pause and then the, like, the little, like, she shakes her head a little and then says Maddie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was thinking, I I survived it because of you, but she can't quite bring mm-hmm. herself to say it. Right. Obviously, it's impossible to pin down exactly what's going on in that moment, but I think it is a kind of combination of, I mean, like, partly just, like, Clark has never been good at feelings. Clark and Bellamy, mm-hmm. both of them are sort of, like, rather than talk about feelings, they're both like, and now I will leave forever. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a sort of reversal of a whole bunch of times when Bellamy did that to her. I think 406 in the conversation where Bellamy's trying to tell her you know how he feels and she's like no no no, you'll see me again and then again in in primify i guess there was a reversal there where she was like i want to tell you you know i have things to say to you and he's like la 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 i don't want to hear it (laughs) and i think but this time is a little bit different because i think you know the hesitance is the kind of awareness that she has you know like this is bellamy but this isn't 
her Bellamy quite. Right. And she's changed. She doesn't quite know this Bellamy. And maybe like a realization of, holy shit, like talking to someone for six years is a lot. Like telling him I survived because I was talking to you is a lot. And maybe it's Mm -hmm. kind of too much when he thought I was dead. And, you know, like we've both changed and I don't quite know for sure exactly where we stand or who we are or who he is. Mm. We are to each other just yet. You know, there's a kind of like unwillingness to put her heart on the line. What that means is that her heart is on the line, you know, which is also like, ah! Mm. Um, (laughs) 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 But I mean, like, Bellamy also, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep I'm just gonna keep squealing. But Bellamy, I also think, you know, like that, that moment is like, I mean, like he's doing the hard eyes Bellamy thing again, you know, but there's that moment of like sort Mm -hmm. of looking at her like, how did you do it? Like you are the most amazing person that I have ever known Mm -hmm. that I, you know, that I never thought I would see again, but here you are somehow miraculously, not just because you survived prime fire, but because you survived by yourself on this planet for so long, you know, like that kind of just sense of awe, you know, and amazement and like Mm -hmm. his, and also his desire to know, like his awareness that he doesn't know, he doesn't know what happened to her. You know, he doesn't know exactly Mm -hmm. who she's become, but he wants to know, you know, like that sort of sense of like, he wants to hear, he wants to, he wants to kind of like, you know, just like fill in the six years and like, and, and sort of reestablish a bond. And I think Clark realizes like, that's a little bit scary right now. Yeah, it was, you know, it was so moving, I think just to sort of see like the contrast I guess between like when we've ha- when, you know, we've seen them have conversations like that before and they've been much less tentative you know like yeah. because they were like in the middle of these shared circumstances mm-hmm. you know like in the middle of like they're leading this group together they're fighting these battles together you know where like everything about who each other is was sort of like an open book to them um, and yeah and it was interesting to sort of watching like everyone is kind of tiptoeing a little bit until they're a little bit more sure of the ground that they're on which is an- and it was like a subtle way of handling like the magnitude of how things change when you're apart from somebody for that long yeah you know? but it felt really like realistic yeah yeah exactly well my my friend elizabeth also pointed out that you know in in those past conversations it's usually clark who has gotten bellamy to open up mm-hmm. yeah and this was very much like a different yeah it's like a flipped it's like the dynamics a little yeah. bit flipped you know and clark has always struggled much more with kind of opening up mm-hmm. so it's like, like sort of a little bit of a, of a flip dynamic and then the conversation in the tent which is just like again it was just sort of i can't believe you know like they actually said the head and the heart you know like had that little mm-hmm. moment of like and I, I like i sort of went back and forth on this i mean i've i saw a couple people sort of say like it felt a little bit clunky to kind of like say the catchphrase and i like you know as dialogue and actually i i think i kind of disagree i think you know it's something that the cast has said a lot and like jason has said a lot in interviews, you know, so it's it's kind of become like a catchphrase. It's really more of a catchphrase in terms of just like the things that people are allowed to say in answer to questions about right, Bellamy right. and Clark right yeah. now, you know, like like that's like that's part of like pop like Bob's pat and like standard answer when somebody asks mm-hmm. him about Bellamy and Clark, like, oh the head and the heart. So I think it feels like more of a kind of like thing than it actually is within the world of the show itself. And I actually think, upon reflection, I think that was, like, a really, really nice sort of... Because, like, what Clark was trying to, like, sort of work around to in her sort of, like, Clark sort of way where she kind of comes at things sort of sideways, you know? She sort of, like, sidles Uh up to them like a crab, you know? She's never going to come at any sort of emotional thing head on. You know, she starts to say that he's changed and and she points out, like, you could have killed those 300 soldiers and you didn't, you know? Like, you saved me and Maddie's alive because of you. You opened 
hope in the bunker. Like you did all these, like here are all the amazing things that you accomplished <laughs> um, in the last mm-hmm. 48 hours, which I think is like, you know, partly also her way to say like, you're also amazing and impressive. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also like, I mean, you know, she's sort of building up to when she says, I think, I think it was like a nice sort of way when you have two characters, like Clark, who is so hesitant, clearly is having difficulty sort of opening up and is, is very unsure of how much of her sort of like heart to reveal at this moment. Like she's not quite sure mm-hmm. how, given the, this Bellamy who's sitting there, who's not the same, quite the same guy who has, you know, who's like really sort of worried about space crew, you know, whose his mind is a little bit more elsewhere than it has been in the past with her, I think a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she recognizes just kind of saying to him, like the head and the heart. I think that was a moment of her, like she remembers that last conversation that she had with him so vividly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like partly, I think a little bit of a test. Mm-hmm. The head mm-hmm. and the heart. Mm-hmm. Like it's a little bit like you remember. Do you remember what I said to you? Yeah. The head and the heart. Like was it as important to him emotionally as it was to her? Exactly. Yeah. Like, or, and also a sort of hesitation of like, okay, so you did all these things and you've changed so much. Is it because of this? Mm-hmm. And Bellamy saying the head and the heart back and they have that sort of like moment of intense balearic eye contact trademark, I think was kind of his confirmation. And again, like I think mm-hmm. it maybe landed a little bit less elegantly than it might otherwise have because of, again, the way that it's become, kind of, it's become the sort of pat answer catchphrase for questions about Balark in the press. Right. But I think within the world, and honestly to me, I think it does make a lot of sense because this is a sort of like, these are two characters who are struggling to communicate with each other. It's like a phrase that is packed with meaning because yeah. of the conversation that she can say to kind of be like, I remember this conversation. I remember talking to you. Mm. I remember, and I think you were listening. And for Bellamy to say like, yes, you know, like I listened and I changed and I internalized that. And to sort of like reforge that connection in that way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally, no. And I actually, I really liked it. I did not observe that it was something that was controversial on social media from. Well, I mean, I think it was, that was mostly in like like it or whatever, but yeah. So you probably wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, so I, that I did not see, but no, I liked it because those are words that they've used with each other. So like, some, yeah. like I think you're exactly right that like thing, you know, whether something has sort of become like you know like a cliche outside the fandom. I feel like somebody in the last episode, I forget who it was, actually said like six years is a long time. Yeah, and I was kind of like, oh, there it is, you know. But like <laughs> in the world of the show, it made perfect sense. It's just like it's a thing that like outside of that it gets repeated and gets all this other kind of like stuff attached to it and I think that's one facet of it I think part of trying to like watch the show as the show itself is unfolding without like letting that other stuff kind of permeate it like you can you know hear the words they're saying to each other kind of outside of the filter of like how they're going to get interpreted later I thought it was lovely and I thought it was the exact right thing to say and I liked that reminder I like her getting to see that like Bellamy became a better and more holistic and more balanced and well-rounded leader because he really took to heart the last piece of advice she ever gave him before she died mm-hmm. like it was imbued with all that emotional weight and he really took it in and and that didn't change or go away just because like she isn't dead she's back now yeah. you know like, he still became that person he's still like he's still the person I think what's going to be really interesting as the season progresses is for Clark when she kind of bumps up against the realization that advice from her that she took 
that made him a better leader will inevitably at some point put him in a position where they don't want the same thing. Yeah. Especially with, you, you know, know, especially with the kinds of decisions that we've already seen Clark make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When Maddie is in play, you know, where it's sort of yeah. entirely heart or not even heart, just sort of like fear, you know, yeah. where that, yeah. will, that will sort of like come back to <laughs> haunt her a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I sort of suspect like given that kind of like confirmation, I hope and can imagine that, I mean, what I would love is for that to happen and for that to lead to a confrontation, you know, like a, some sort of like argument, frankly, between Bellamy and Clark, where he basically like says to her, I'm saying this to you, like, you taught me this, you know, like. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> don't make the mistakes that I made, you know, when mm-hmm. we first got down here, when I was just trying to protect Octavia, like, I know better now because of you. Mm-hmm. So yes, that would be beautiful. Yeah. I feel like that's in some ways very much the direction that we could be headed. Yes, I agree. Which I'm really interested in. You know, like, I, I think that that's been set up in so many ways from the premiere with that, you know, interchange we saw between Clark and Maddie, where we saw like all the things that Clark had been telling herself about this new version of herself that she was going to be, who had this sort of, you know, more nuanced understanding of the moral ambiguity of enemies that she'd faced in the past. And then like along comes somebody holding a gun at her kid and she's like, nope, just kidding. (laughs) Ba-bang, you know? And um, so I do, I do feel like I think an interesting role that we'll see Clark's laser focus on Maddie being kind of a new facet in who she's become and Bellamy being the center of a community, which is a whole different kind of dynamic, you know, and that sort of head-heart balance. Yeah, I think the flip from season one with them is really interesting and I I think getting to see her have to react to like, she made him a better leader, she taught him things that he needed to know and he like learned and internalized them and part of the consequence of that means that it may pull him away from going along with things that she wants. And that's a way to sort of potentially force her to confront the fact that she's not necessarily, she's not like, the, you know, I guess the ways in which she isn't the leader anymore. Yeah. You know? And I love it. There are all these ways in which like basically the sort of Bellamy and Clark's dynamic has flipped you know, in terms of love mm. that, where like Bellamy has kind of learned how to be more, somewhat more of a leader like Clark had been, and Clark is behaving more, mm-hmm. you know, like Bellamy had when, especially when Bellamy was just like, you know, all about Octavia. The, the sort of reversal in terms of like, you know, which we talked about at the campfire scene, you know, of Bellamy trying to be the one to get like Clark to sort of open up and tell him about her feelings <laughs> um, instead of vice, you know, instead of vice versa. I'm also very excited, and I, and I, especially with the end of this episode I feel like there's fairly decent mm-hmm. chances that this will happen potential that we might get also reversal in terms of like Clark being the one who's kind of pining after Bellamy which was mm. a little bit the opposite for a long time because we got that uh, we <laughs> The ending of this episode when, you know, the rover shows up and mm-hmm. Maddie and Space Crew get out. I remember like I was talking with, you know, I was talking with my group chat while I was watching uh, watching the episode. And after we realized that probably those reunions would happen this episode, we were sort of like debating, is like Becco actually going to get like, a, are they going to react to each other like a couple this time? You know, like, is that actually going to mm-hmm. happen? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I mean, I mean, it would make perfect sense. It's the perfect setup, except for that it's the perfect setup for a love triangle, which, you know, they've said they're not going to do or whatever. And then we get the most 
fucking love triangle setup in the history of time. Like, <laughs> Bellamy and Echo come together, and then literally, like, I was watching, I, I paid attention to this the last couple of times. Like, they come together, and then immediately the shot changes so that Becco is, like, in the foreground, but blurry, kissing while Clark watches them. And I'm just like... So you're just going all in on the classic love triangle. Okay. All right. All right. right. So all that stuff about like, oh, we don't really do love triangles. Bullshit. This is the most standard <laughs> fucking love triangle. And I'm not mad. Like, I'm yelling. I'm not mad about it. I'm perfectly happy with this. Because this like the, the brand of love triangle this is, is the love triangle that you get right before a slow burn ship is going to become canon. Is like the, the half that has been pining for a long time goes away and gets a significant other and then comes mm-hmm. back and then the other half is like oh shit I'm in love with you whoops and like pines for a little while right. until the other relationship ends and then that's when you're like well we're on the same side now or like we're on the same page again but like I did not expect like so I was like I was sort of like thinking like okay I mean like the setup is there like it's the, this is exactly how that setup works but like they're not they're not gonna right. go like that nope nope so far basically <laughs> like down to every single fucking beat <laughs> <laughs> it's like on Bones when Booth went off to Afghanistan and like mm-hmm. got a girlfriend in a war zone somehow and then came back, you know, like after after he had convinced his feelings to to Brennan and she was like, no, I can't, you know, like, I, I don't I don't feel that way. Then he goes off and gets a girlfriend and comes back and Brennan is like, I'm in love with you. Oh, whoops. OK, well, I guess I'll just like pine after you for half a season <laughs> until your girlfriend decides to break up with you for like whatever reason although ostensibly nothing to do with me and then (laughs) and then by the end of the season we're together so this is just to say i am delighted but also uh would like to make fun of jason rothenberg for about three hours (laughs) although this does explain that one interview he gave where some you know the the interviewer said something about like oh you know you don't like love triangles and he was like well i don't know if you would say that i hate love triangles i I mean, there are some love triangles that are good. So it's a bit of a stretch to say that I don't like love triangles, which we now know is because he is absolutely doing a fucking love triangle. <laughs> right. I know. I just hope that there's a way out of this where Echo doesn't get screwed over, you know? I actually... Like, I want to make sure I that... I feel pretty okay about it, honestly, just because they've done enough... Yeah. They've done enough groundwork for Echo as a character, having sort of, like, her yeah. own emotional issues, mm-hmm. that first of all, I feel like there is plenty of groundwork there for them to break up, not because, uh, you know, Bellamy is like, well, Clark's here now. You know what I mean? Like, right. I, I think the, the thing that the cut to Clark then immediately pinging over to that, like, aggressively sinister cut to Octavia. Yeah. I think that, that to me felt like, okay, so what they're, what they're setting up here is like, you know, like separate from Clark's emotional reaction to realizing that Bellamy's in a relationship with somebody, the force, like if a force is going to thwart this, it isn't Clark. Exactly. It's definitely Octavia. It's definitely the kind of love triangle that isn't like two girls fighting over a boy and he has to choose. You know, I don't think it's, it's yeah, a love yeah, triangle yeah. in the sense that yeah. you have that. I think like it's it seems fairly clear to me that they're setting up that there are feelings between Bellamy and Clark. Clark is realizing that is sort of like dealing with them. Bellamy is in a relationship with somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like th- this is sort of like basically kind of how it worked with Bones. And I mean, there's other examples, but Bones is the one mm-hmm. I'm most mm-hmm. uh, familiar with where basically it was just sort of she realized she had feelings, but in Booth was like, I'm sorry, you know, like I'm 
I'm with someone else now. And she was like, and you know, and like, mm. she didn't push it. Like it, the breakup didn't happen because of yeah, her. Yeah, like, yeah. Booth's girlfriend broke up with him because for like entirely separate reasons that had to do with, mm-hmm. he was way more serious than she was. And he wanted to like marry and settle down. And she was like, I'm a reporter who travels the world. Like, you know, you're great, but mm-hmm. like, I'm just not here for that. So the breakup happened for a ty- for like separate reasons. And then there was a period between, you know, and there was a kind of like a waiting period. So I, I fully expected it'll be like that kind of love, tra- you know, where it's sort of like, yeah, it's being yeah. set up as, like is again was more sort of about like I think Clark kind of confronting her feelings and having to deal mm-hmm. with the fact that like oh shit I have feelings for Bellamy and yeah. like I was kind of tentatively figuring out what to do about them and then whoops <laughs> yeah and like I feel like you know I, I mean this is entirely a headcanon but like to me that sort of look on her face that like punch in the gut look on her face and she saw them definitely it like sort of felt like a moment of where like she didn't really realize what her feelings were until she saw mm-hmm. that and then she's like oh fuck <laughs> Right. I'm in trouble. Yeah. Um, And like, and there's absolutely no way that Clark as a character would ever push that. For one thing. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. There's no possible way that she would ever make it an issue. You know, like I think from Clark's side, it's definitely going to be a sort of like, not a thing that like, she's going to be like... But I love you. Be with me. Obviously. Like, that's... I really, really don't think yeah, that's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. But, like, I mean, I, the reason that I'm not super worried about Echo getting the shaft is, again, because, like you said, like, I think there's lots of groundwork set in terms of tensions between her and Bellamy that have nothing to do with Clark. Mm-hmm. The biggest one, obviously, is... Octavia and sort of Octavia being someone who might like sort of be a wedge between them. But it's like not even just Octavia, you know, it's, I think also it's like, it's about, you know, Echo and her feelings of, you know, it's like she was always like, things are going to change when we get to the ground, like her sense that this can't last. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's one of those things that like yeah. as a feeling is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, because then you're always looking yeah. for it. Yeah. And like, and that's the part that makes me feel like she's not going to get screwed over because I feel it because that is also a story about Echo. You know, that's a kind of thing that can end yes. a relationship. Yes. But that is also a piece of a character arc that is about her and her specifically and her as a person separate from Bellamy. Mm-hmm. That means that hopefully, you know, that that arc will sort of like continue on and, and lead to some kind of resolution where she figures out like, who am I and how do I fit in this new world? So that she doesn't yeah. just wind up being like, whatever, killed or pushed aside or, you know, I'm, I'm not super worried about that, honestly. Yeah, I'm not I'm not super worried either. I just I think, you know, I think if if a piece of it ends up being unsatisfactory I feel like it'll be that's just sort of the thing where I'm like that I would really dislike but yeah, I, yeah, I agree with yeah, you. I think yeah. I think that there's enough other I was glad that they gave you know Bellamy and Echo like a reunion moment because we, when we talked before about like the last time where it's like the notable absence of them acting in a couple way where mm. you're just kind of like why is this not why is this not here so I, I feel like you know like allowing that to be like a real relationship and what are the ways in which that relationship shapes Echo you know, changes her relationship with Octavia with one crew now that they're back on the ground. And yeah, and letting it be a story that's about her having agency, her kind of going on a journey that allows like her and Clark to be friends mm-hmm. and for them to have a relationship where they get to like be like, not be antagonistic, but like, you know, like can Clark and Echo like team up together on something? And, like things like that. That's what I really, you know, like what I really want. And there were some BTS shots that um, Jason posted of a scene, like a really emotional scene between Clark and Echo. Yeah, yeah, season. yeah. So I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that 
scene, you know, I think it does sort of promise that there will be some kind of like textual reckoning with some of these, some of this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and not necessarily about Bellamy, although I could see them sort of, you know, I could see like, it would definitely be like a really effective moment of talking about Bellamy, but also maybe just sort of about how hard it is for Clark to know that there were six years that she wasn't there. And then for Echo to sort of be like how hard it was for her mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, in some ways be living with a ghost for six years. Yeah, yeah, I think that could be a really powerful conversation that wouldn't have to be about that wouldn't have to necessarily be triangulated around Bellamy in such a specific way that then it sort of gets into like fail the Bechdel test kind of territory but yeah but just like what did it mean to both of them Clark alone with everyone that she cares about you know in other places and Echo sort of going from outsider to insider, but also with this sort of specter of, you know, Clark died to make this possible. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think, and also, and we talked about this before, I think Echo could have a really interesting perspective that nobody else has, you know, just because she kind of came into the script from the outside on, like, what everyone's kind of transformations and Bellamy's transformation in particular were like, knowing that Clark was dead and that that, you know, happened in order to save all of their lives. Like, I think, like, her, you know, her perspective on, like, how did that change these people could be really, you know, she could see people like Bellamy and Raven more clearly than they could articulate to Clark. Here's how I change. Yeah, the yeah, you know, yeah. like just because she sort of had that perspective. I want them to have a relationship where they get to connect. And I don't want to sort of figure out like how does Echo's role kind of evolve? I like the little snippet that we got of forest spy Echo, yeah. like the little girl squad mm-hmm. moment. I was like, more of this. <laughs> this yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, and, I, and again, I do love that they keep coming back to reestablishing like Echo has a really, really important role in that group. You know, like she yes. is really very important to all of those people. And I think maybe mm-hmm. like it feels like a part of that journey is going to be that she doesn't necessarily know or feel that or she sort of still like connects that to her Mm -hmm. utility or whatever and like she has to learn to see and accept that but it's like it's very clear that she has relationships with all of them you know it's not just Bellamy that's already established and so I think that that kind of like already mitigates some of the worry that I would otherwise have I agree about her getting Gina'd or whatever (laughs) yes exactly I agree should we transition from there to Murphy and Raven speaking of Echo being a spy in the woods yes. do we have more on on the polis side i think that's all on the polis side we should take okay. a pause in the rover we can go backwards through time and take a pause in the rover to talk about how adorable maddie and murphy were yes oh my god <laughs> <laughs> best line like in an episode full of good lines and like with all due respect to kane who had all my other favorite great lines but goddamn maddie telling murphy I thought you'd be funnier. Was oh I was like, this is, like that was clear, this is the highlight of this whole. Like, oh my god, I'm screaming, and he was so like wounded. And the look on his face, he, he was, was like, just like, uh, what? like uh, how dare you? Who's the Hobbit? Was also a great one. Oh, like, yes. He was just like, like watching a child he's never met barking commands that Echo and Harper and Amori just instantly follow, and then her being like, "I'll drive the car." He's like, still like, no one has told Murphy who this kid yeah. is. He's like, where did you find a child? Why is she like running around being like, I'll drive? (laughs) (laughs) How do you have a car? This is my new, like, I want, like, a buddy cop spinoff or, like, a road trip spinoff or some, like, I just want, like, I want, like, 10 more hours of just Murphy and Maddie in a car sniping at each other. 
<laughs> it was amazing. I was so happy. Oh, that was beautiful. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> also, the look on his face and when also, she said uh, Octavia was my favorite was just like yeah. He was like oh, hard oh, same God. Murphy, yeah. hard same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did also like I you know. Until the moment when Montu kind of popped his head up, you know, and I was like, oh, right, like Montu's in the car for a second before I, because he didn't, he didn't have like a ton to do. But the idea, like, it sort of planted this like mental picture in my head of like the girl squad of Echo, Imori, Harper, Maddie. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's so dope. But like, <laughs> I was so excited that like, like, like Maddie has like a girl posse now, like warrior. Yeah, ladies. I would love, honestly, like I would love like a whole mini webisode of just like Maddie hanging out with Echo and yes. Mori and Harper. Yes. When we get Lola on, we should ask her like if she has like thoughts and headcanons about like all the stuff that we didn't see off screen about Maddie like hanging out with Yeah, Lola like what do they do at all that then. time? You know, it was like Echo like sparring with her or something. Yeah. yeah. Did Amori live up to the stories? Like because there must have been stories about Gamori and Harper. And, yeah. Yeah. So I, I loved... I loved the girl squad. I loved that we got a little, you know, we got we got a little bit more reminder of the Murphy Amori estrangement. And that her first reaction, you know, was not like, thank God you're alive. But it was just like, why the fuck did you leave Raven behind? Yeah. But then, <laughs> and then, but he then you to, know, like, when he gets shocked, when the shock collar goes off, she's the first yeah. person to, to reach out yep. to him. And then when he gets out, you know, she gets out and, and then stays she's with her him. staying behind. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, they went on a nice little journey just in the course of this one mm-hmm. episode that I actually really liked. There was a nice arc to it. I think it's like, it gives you a lot of information about where Imori is at in that like, she's mm-hmm. very, very angry with him. Justifiably, yeah. obviously. Like she's very angry, but she still really, really deeply cares about him. She actually yes. cannot yeah. bring herself to let him be alone in the woods to be found mm-hmm. by those people, you know? And she like rolls her yeah. eyes and it's kind of like, oh my God, but she got out yeah, of that. But she's there. Yeah, she's there. Yeah. Which made my little yeah. Imori shipping heart sore. Oh my God. I was very happy because yeah. I want those kids to find each other again. <laughs> I know. And I really do have faith that they will. I mean, I think that them setting up this early in this season, that even as estranged as they've been, and even as completely valid as her reasons were for wanting to be like, I am cutting you out of my life, the depth of the love that still exists between them, you know, it's like, it's like you can be angry at somebody without it diminishing how much you love them in any way. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and I, what I liked about that was like, I think there were some really, really cool counterpoints, really all throughout this episode that reminded us that when Octavia says love is weakness, that's largely bullshit that's not borne out by any of the other stories that were watching. Like, that's a thing yes. that you say mm-hmm. to yourself. Yeah. Like, to protect yourself from pain. Mm-hmm. That's a lie that you tell yourself which is comforting. Mm-hmm. But no one who has said that has it actually, like, proved to be true. Like, love sometimes invites bad things to happen because you've made yourself vulnerable, but that's not the same as weakness. Exactly. You know, like, it wasn't, like, Lexa wasn't weak because assholes trying to control her killed Costia. Like, that's not on you, you know? Yeah. But it's just a thing that you tell yourself because it makes it easier for you to justify shutting down completely, you know? And I think it was very, very much a part of the Kane and Abby story that we'll get to. And we talked about it a little bit in terms of Indra. But I think that with Murphy and Amori, too, I feel like what's probably going to happen in terms of how this story goes next is Amori staying behind is going to end up being in a position to save his 
life Mm -hmm. and, you know, and to do something or to help the master plan in a way where if Murphy had stayed behind alone, he wouldn't have been able to do it, which again is another way of giving the lie to this idea that like love makes you vulnerable. When in fact, I think whatever their little slice of the plot in the next episode or two ends up being, I think is going to pretty clearly be more of a sort of testimonial to like people are stronger together and they're stronger in pairs and they're stronger in family groups and they're stronger in loving relationships Mm -hmm. than they are when they're just out on their own. You know, and Octavia doesn't see that in the same way because she's not really alone. She's surrounded by like devoted followers. So she can kind of tell herself like, I'm self-sufficient. And it's like, well, no. But also in like a weird, twisted way, like the reason that Blood Raina is Blood Raina is because people like love her in a sense. You know, they're devoted. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In a weird fucked up sense. They're like that devotion. And so she feels like because she doesn't Mm -hmm. love them back, Mm -hmm. she feels like she's shut herself down from like, like she's a luxury of being like, love makes you weak. So I don't do it. But it's like, okay, but the only reason that you have what you have is because you are loved. People are devoted to you. So like your perception of your own independence and self-sufficiency is only because you don't really see those people as people equal to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and with Murphy and Amori and with Clark and Maddie and with Kane and Abby and with Indra and Octavia even, like we see all of these different instances where the thing that's going to get you through the terrible thing about to happen is your human connection to somebody that you love deeply. Well, even with the Blark conversation. And them saving you when you can't save yourself. Yeah, like even with the Blark conversation where Bellamy says surviving mm-hmm. six years alone is impressive. How did you do it? And Clark says, I wasn't alone. You yeah. Know, like, being alone, yes, exactly. being without connection is something that would be unendurable yeah. but she endured because she had Maddie right. and because she had the connection to Bellamy mm-hmm. and I think you know I hadn't thought about it before but I think maybe that's one reason why those two conversations are juxtaposed the way they are you know like not just uh-huh. because you know it's a location wise Indra looks over and has the occasion to say your brother mm-hmm. loves you but that also to remind you isolation is not survivable isolation is bad you know like yes. in order to survive yes. you need connection yeah and I think triangulating both of those conversations like the Clark and Bellamy one and the Indra and Octavia one, both of them orbiting a little bit around the Bellamy and Octavia relationship gives me some hope that at some point that he is maybe going to be if anyone can crack through, you know, like if anyone can get through to her and remind her of the power of that human connection, it's Bellamy being there with her, you know, so I think I'm hopeful that that's sort of a little bit of foreshadowing, you know, having both Clark and Indra kind of observing the importance of Bellamy in reaching Octavia. And I think you're right that I think for Clark in like what we saw of her in the first episode, we saw what it did to her being alone that long. Mm -hmm. You know, like we watched that happen and the only reason that she became the Clark that she became was because she had first Bellamy and then Bellamy and Maddie Mm -hmm. as company to kind of keep her sane. So I feel like on some level, when he says that to her, like, you know, congratulating her on surviving alone, I feel like it's not hard to imagine her flashing back to like, you know, how close she almost came to not surviving because she was alone and because of how brutal that was. And Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's something that she'll ever necessarily reveal to anybody. You know, I think she keeps those things buttoned up pretty closely. But we watch that whole first half of 501 works as a direct counterpoint to the thing that Octavia said, to the idea that it is better to be alone than to be connected because connection weakens you and being solitary strengthens you. And it's like, we spent 27 minutes 
alone in the desert with Clark about to shoot herself in the head. Mm-hmm. Like, you're full of shit, Octavia. Mm-hmm. That's not real. Mm-hmm. You're perceiving yourself to be alone because you're not loving anyone back, but you're not alone. You're surrounded by people who are giving you everything that you want and need. And actual aloneness looks like Clark in the desert being pecked by a fucking buzzer. <laughs> You know, yeah, like exactly. That's what it looks like. Yeah. You know, so, or so all I think of your people turning I think their it's really interesting just how how much those things are being contrasted. Yeah, no, I I totally agree, and I think it is really deliberate. I think you're totally right to kind of yes. point out yes. like we have actually seen real solitude, <laughs> mm-hmm. and this is yeah, not, and it is not Blood Raina exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's another piece yeah. of the Blood Raina myth that Octavia is also selling herself. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of love, Shaw and Raven. <laughs> Finally meet face to face. What a meet cute. Oh, God. Nothing like a little shot collaring to bring people together. (laughs) And I loved that he was the one that fucked with the missiles, as many people suspected. Which makes so much sense why, like, he can't, you know, like, his... The horrible position that he's in, watching them get tortured for something that, like, he knows that Raven can't tell McCreary what he wants to know because she didn't do it, Mm -hmm. but he can't reveal that without tipping his hand and getting them all killed and losing any kind of leverage that he has to be any kind of a mitigating force on McCreary and Dioza. And so, like, watching him watch this all go down and try to figure out at what point does he have to step across that line, Mm -hmm. you know, to tip his hand to this incredibly dangerous dangerous, unstable motherfucker because otherwise an innocent person is going to die or, you know, be tortured to death who didn't need to be was just like a fascinating reminder of the fact that he thinks so much more like our people than he does like them. Yeah. You know, like he's so much more a Raven than a McCreary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think like, I love that Raven pretty much immediately put that together. Like she recognized yep, like yep. every step of what he was doing. And this is another moment in which Raven and Murphy in that scene were perfect foils to each other yes. because Raven was so angry like he let this happen he did this because he's trying to save his skin and Murphy is kind of like hey 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 nothing wrong with saving your skin let's focus on the fact that he did save us and sort of accept mm-hmm. the fact that everyone's trying to save their skins and you know so like Raven would have totally loaned that opportunity I think because she was rightfully angry with him <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> you know and Murphy has the perspective needed in that moment to be like this is an opportunity you know like we need to let go mm-hmm. of our personal like that was fucked up dude and recognize this opportunity for what it is and seize it. Yes. Yeah. So like I really liked that. And you know I think it was it was like an interesting further development of the McCreary Shaw dynamic too. Mm-hmm. Which I am enjoying with my entire heart. Yes. As am I. I think there's <laughs> the thing about William Miller which is sort of like uncomfortable somewhat occasionally or like sort of awkward in certain moments with this show is that he has such amazing chemistry with everyone that there's like a moment in every single yes. like, every scene that he's in I'm like I feel kind of like I ship it a little bit but like that's fucked up and I really shouldn't but he's just got like that charisma (laughs) yes yes but it makes for like a really really interesting kind of ingredient to Mercury as a character and I think it kind of gives Mercury a kind of like charm and charisma that makes you understand like this guy is like a sociopath and a monster but you understand why everyone around him doesn't always immediately pick up on that and just like shun him because he is also Mm -hmm. really charming and smooth and has this weird 
magnetism yeah. that can sort of plausibly make people like Abby, who is like immediately and rightfully suspicious of him, kind of go along a little bit, you know? And it makes sense why Dioza, mm-hmm. you know, while recognizing everything is wrong with him, keeps him around, maybe not just because he's useful, and also why she was banging him for a while back when they were minors, which like 100% right. get it. Yeah, which is <laughs> important piece of backstory, yeah. Yes, yes, an important thing yeah. to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I felt the same way too. Like he, and we can talk about this more when we get to the cabbie stuff, because that Abby McCurry scene, there was like so much to unpack. But his little smile, like it's creepy because it's entirely sincere. Mm-hmm. You know, like like he is genuinely having a good time and <laughs> that is creepy. <laughs> you yeah, know? exactly, exactly. He's only pissed off when people defy him. You know, he's like mad exactly, at Raven yeah. that she won't give in and he's mad at Shaw for, yeah. for like standing up to him. But like otherwise he's having a grand old time. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And that sort of flip back and forth, you know, like the way, and and Vincent's also a great example of, mm. of the creepiness of somebody who is like quiet and friendly mm-hmm. and you know that there is evil there. And with McCreary, we've already seen like both sides of him enough to know that when McCreary is quiet and smiling at you, that's when you should be like most afraid. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But yeah, but I, I'm really interested in every facet of the kind of increasingly messy three-way dynamic between the religious leaders. Like the more we sort of get to know all three of them, see their dynamics with the rest of the crew. It's so interesting because like no two of them are reliably on the same page about anything. Like everything is a negotiation that has to happen again each time from scratch. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that, you know, like so Shaw pulling a gun on McCreary to get him to stop torturing Murphy and Raven, like he can justify it because he can be like, no, in this moment you've gone too far. That wasn't our mission. Mm -hmm. You know, without having to necessarily reveal that it's because he knows that Raven is innocent and he feels like shit watching this happen to her. He can kind of cover with McCreary, but McCreary then goes immediately, you know, like runs to tell mom. (laughs) You know, like McCreary goes to Diosa and basically is like, Shaw pulled a gun on me. He's like, I'm not asking for permission, but he did this and she's like, you are asking for permission and permission to die. Yeah, and you don't have it. Like I'm still in charge. the baddest motherfucker on that planet. Oh my God. And I worship her. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. I love her. I love Diosa so much. I love everything about her. I love every interaction she has with every single character. But I also... Like, Kira's a fascinating twist in the Dioza mythos. The way that she is with the rest of the group, like her genuine revulsion that they've gone full season one oh my God. <laughs> delinquent okay, but that on was their the new most, home. That was the most Clark moment from Dioza so far when she walks she was back so into Clark. camp and is like, why Stop are you having, having fun? fun? <laughs> what are you doing? You're making too much noise. There's work to be done. Hello? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I was laughing so hard. I was like, I've been here before. I recognize that that person. That is the most seasonal. That is like the first three episodes of Clark in a nutshell. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, How dare you enjoy yourself? Why are you listening to music? Why are you doing fun things? Like we have work to do. Oh my God, I can't even believe. Okay, fine. You can have have a limited time. You can have like a limited amount of fun and then fun time is over. (laughs) Right. It was so great because one of the things that I'm already really loving about Dioza that I think is 
something that I know like we enjoyed about Pike. Not everyone got there with Pike, <laughs> but I think that they're doing a better job of laying it out there with Dioza is that you can immediately see the version of this story where she is the protagonist instead of the antagonist. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can immediately see the version of the story where like she was she was a freedom fighter. I think the more that we learn about the line between a rebel that we side with and a rebel that we don't side with has a lot to do with context all the time. And I expect mm-hmm. that the more that we learn about the fascists that she was fighting against, why she turned on her own SEAL team, I think that will continue like even more so to flush her out and give her more nuance. Mm-hmm. But I think there's already forming a really clear version of the story where she is a person who everything that she has done has been for the same of causes that would make totally perfect sense to us if we were on her side. Fighting against a tyrannical takeover, faking her own death to get out of prison. Then when she's in prison, she gets drafted against her will for this manual space labor. If we're right that part of Order 11 involved JK, the thing you thought was your mission, which was bad enough because it was mining, is part of it in actuality. It was a ship being diverted for second on or whatever, like we'd sort of speculated before. Like if there's something nefarious going on and she was like, I want no part of that, I just one is to get home and that the coup was to prevent something worse from happening. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, this, like it's lining up all these different things where to our protagonist characters, she is a problem. You know, mm-hmm. she's landed in the middle of territory that Clark wants, that Octavia wants for different reasons that they all both feel entitled to. And she's looking at it like, my planet blew up while I was out of town. <laughs> Like, you can forgive her being a little bit like, I don't know what the fuck is happening. I'm just trying to do the best that I can. So I feel like she's sympathetic is the wrong word because that's a little too soft, I think. But like, but she's so comprehensible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and consistent. And it's easy and to like, understand. interestingly, although she is absolutely prepared and willing to take extreme measures when it's necessary, she is very measured. She will yes. not yes, take exactly. an extreme yeah. or a violent measure if she doesn't mm-hmm. think that it is strategically the best choice or necessary for the situation. Yes. You know, and like, and she has no qualms about going there if it is necessary. But mm-hmm. if it isn't, then she will shut it down. Yeah, like she's she doesn't she's revel a good in violence. Soldier, like she isn't. She's a person who like she was trained to kill for strategic purposes. You know, she was a Navy SEAL. She wasn't an assassin. She wasn't a serial killer. She's not McCreary. Yeah. She's a person who, like, you know, she has no problem if death is the solution to the tangle that she's found herself in, she'll use it. But it doesn't give her pleasure the way death and pain give McCreary and Vincent pleasure. Yeah. Like, the thing that makes her able to sort of operate in a somewhat emotionally colder way, it's a military training that people in military situations Mm -hmm. are targets, Mm -hmm. not people. Right. She can have that detachment. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not because she doesn't on any level consider that there isn't a point in her decision making that isn't like is this loss of life necessary to achieving her goal and Mm -hmm. I think some of this comes into the way that Ivana plays her with so much subtlety you know and so much restraint you know in terms Mm -hmm. of like her like everything her physicality her voice the way that everything Mm -hmm. that she says is delivered in a way that it feels very considered like Dioza does Mm -hmm. not say anything by accident nothing slips out yep it's all very calculated Mm-hmm. Which is not to say, like, you know, she's capable of being surprised. Things will surprise yes. her. But, it, like, I love the way that, like, when things surprise her, she almost half the time seems, like, amused by it. Like, oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. Yes, exactly. Isn't yeah. Th- isn't that one of those little things that just makes life worth living? Well, <laughs> 
And that's sort of like the grudging respect that she has when anyone can even come close to meeting her at her intellectual level. Exactly. Because she's so light years beyond the dumbasses that have been following her. Yeah. Her stature over them is so unquestioned Mm -hmm. because she's so like transparently the most superior brain out of all of them in terms of like a tactician, a leader, things like that. And a lot of people like Kodiak are kind of just like blunt instruments, you know. (laughs) But I think that when she bumps up against, you know, like with Clark, with Octavia, with Abby and Kane, with anyone who can, with Raven, you know, there's that kind of like, I'm annoyed at this inconvenience, but I'm also sort of like, you know, there's a kind of like grudging admiration Mm -hmm. for like, all right, well, like, at least it's a fair fight. Yeah. You know, like, like, she wants an enemy that's like at their fighting weight before she starts bitch slapping him around. And now it's like, all right, well, this Raven person came to play. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And like the worst thing that for her is at the end of the last episode, when you have these literal loose cannon prisoner Uh guys who do something that she doesn't expect or doesn't want to happen that fuck up her plans. Exactly. That's the kind of unpredictability that is a problem. And that's the unpredictability that McCreary is always threatening, that she is sort of like just barely contained. Mm. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes him the constant source of potential intention in that dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the other sort of Achilles heel for her is that I think she's a little bit underestimated Shaw in that she really yes. genuinely does not yes. seem to realize that he is capable of deceiving her. I think she mm-hmm. thinks that he's pretty well under her thumb. And I think she perceives that he has lines that he doesn't want to cross. And so I think she'll try to like not push too hard against those. But like, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like, the scene after they make the plan to let Murphy go as a distraction with Raven. But he says like, well, don't worry. We still have the shock collar on him, blah, blah, blah. And Raven's like screaming at him. I'm pretty sure Raven knew that. Oh, yeah. I think that was definitely part of the That was all staged, I thought. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought so too. You know, I I think it's interesting that she does not seem to have picked up that his discomfort means that he might be manipulating things from his own side. I think McCreary is starting to maybe realize that. But she won't even listen to him. Mm -hmm. You know, She's just like, whatever, I don't care about your petty little spats. Not realizing that, like, there's actually something else going on. She also doesn't, you know, like, she does not yet respect Raven Reyes's brain, which is always a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is something that will always come back to haunt you. Yep. (laughs) Well, and I think I definitely feel like I'm really interested in how, like, like, Raven is still there. Like, they still have Raven captive. And what her continued presence does to keep deepening this growing wedge among the three of them, like, last episode, Shaw was like on Elygius' side, but feeling conflicted about it. And in this episode, he's pretty squarely in the middle where he's not yet ready to outright defy Dioza and pick another team. Mm -hmm. But he is willing to go along with Raven's plan that sort of gives everybody what they want and sort of play that middle. But Raven is still there. So I'm wondering what the continued presence of Raven, you know, and this sort of growing connection between her and Shaw, like at what point do we see him flip altogether? Mm -hmm. And how does he do that in a way that keeps McCreary from going fully nuclear on everybody? Mm -hmm. Or does he kind of stay there as a sort of double agent? He flips, but he does doesn't indicate that he flips and then he's kind of he and Raven are kind of perpetually trying to stay like one step ahead of Dioza and McCreary which is really interesting yeah. too you know so kind of how this all evolves from here and I'm sort of curious if Shaw will keep trying to sort of walk the line for a little bit longer the way that he was this yeah. episode where he's trying to not go all the way to doing the stuff that he's uncomfortable with but not rock the boat too much and I'm sort of curious to see mm-hmm. you know what it is that tips him you know and if it's Raven which I yeah. can see especially if that 
relationship is going in like a chippy direction. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or even if it isn't, or even if it's laying the groundwork, but hasn't gotten there yet. I think it's important to not underestimate the impact on Shaw of hearing somebody say to him, I see that you are not like those guys. That is a very good like, point. Like, yeah. I, for, for Raven to say like, look, like, I read everyone's profile and I know that you're not one of them. Mm-hmm. I know that the reason that yeah. you're hesitating is because, you know, like... She saw the video. Yeah. She saw him say, hey, whoa, nobody was supposed to get mm-hmm. killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like she witnessed him not, like she she observed with her own eyes that none of this was what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she reminded him, she reminded him of the fact that he has more options than just turning out like McCreary or yeah. Diaz. Yeah. And know? like literally more options than, well, you survive, but your friends get blown up or you mm-hmm. don't survive mm-hmm. and your friends get blown up. And she's like, or options C through Z. <laughs> right. Or, hi, I'm Raven. Let me introduce you to my brain. Yeah. Where there's always mm-hmm. nine potential options running But I think that's at least partly, you know, that might be one of those things where it's not necessarily that Zeke wasn't smart enough to see those options. It's that he's been so locked in this world, like you were saying, mm-hmm. he doesn't really see the full array of things because he's just like, I'm trapped with these people. So the potential of Raven sort of yeah. looking at him and being like, you're not one of them. Yeah. You don't have to yeah. be Yeah, you of and them. I are the same. Yeah, yeah. You you and I are the same. Like, we're actually kind of in the same situation. Like, we have mm-hmm. capabilities that we're being forced to use for people in ways that we don't want to. So, like, you could be me and we could get out of this. Mm-hmm. And if you left, they'd be fucked. They couldn't fly, you know? And that's a huge strategic yeah. thing, too, because right now, like, the big advantage that Legius has is the ship, which is, A, missiles, but then also just the ability to zip back and forth across that desert without having to confront the weather. Mm-hmm. So if Raven could get Shaw to abandon them, like, if she could get their pilot away from them, mm-hmm. then they can't fly that ship. Right. Then they're fighting on foot. Then they lose their kind of tactical advantage yeah. of being able to spy visually from the air. This is where the... Could come into play that they don't know about the sandworms. Mm-hmm. Like they don't know that there's more danger in the desert than just the storms. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, like if Raven can get Shaw to defect and they lose that tactical advantage of their advanced technology, then they're in the exact same situation that Octavia and her people are in. And then it's sort of trained fighter against fighter. And then it comes down to like a weapons advantage. There's a lot. It levels the playing field considerably, yeah. you know, and so I wouldn't be surprised if in this sort of run up to whatever the kind of final end game battle looks like, maybe not right away, but if eventually at some point that becomes a piece of what Raven is trying, especially if Raven and Shaw end up intersecting at any point with Kane and Abby, now that they're all in the same place together, and Shaw realizes even more like, these aren't bad people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like the leader is maybe crazy and her cult is maybe crazy, but like he liked Clark, he likes Raven. Mm-hmm. Even Murphy, you know, so I think him realizing more and more, like, it's convenient for Dioza to look at these people as targets and obstacles instead of human beings. And for McCreary, it's effortless because he doesn't see anybody really as being fully human. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think the more the scales feel balanced, you know, like, like in some ways, it's like, he's like Maya, right? Like, he's, yeah. he exists in this system where it's like, once you realize that the people whose deaths are going to make your life possible are human beings, you can't make the same choices anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Or, or you can't make them as easily and effortlessly as you could before. So yeah, I, I feel like like, like setting him and Raven up in a Jasper and Maya kind of thing could be a really interesting sort of setup for, you know, how does that thwart 
How does that force Dioza to have to shift the plan that she's built, which depends upon her being able to just kind of like zoom over and drop bombs on Octavia whenever Octavia gets too close? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So Kane and Abby. Oh! Okay. (laughs) So I have many thoughts. (laughs) I'll contain my... My shippy squeals because we're recording our shippy roundtable podcast this weekend where we can just sort of scream forever about hair kissing and back rubs. <laughs> but in but in terms of like in terms of story and in terms of how how this really fascinating little slice of the plot is playing out. So one one thing that I that I I observed kind of indirectly, you know how fandom and social media sort of filters these things. Was a, was a great deal of, of alarm on the part of some people in the cabbie fandom that either with McCreary or Dioza or both that something resembling a love triangle is being set up. And I <laughs> definitively do not. No. I don't. No. I, like, I mean, like, look, again, William Miller has like insane chemistry with everyone right, that that's, he's in a that's scene what, with. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, well, and and Dioza and her sexy eyebrow lift. Yeah, but again, she does that to everyone. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So I think I think that there's uh, yeah. I think one piece of it is these are actors that have. I mean, they're both like they're super hot and they have outrageous chemistry mm-hmm. with every like like Dioza had chemistry with Clark. She had chemistry with mm-hmm. Octavia. That doesn't mean that there's a choice on the part of the actor or on the part of the writers to intentionally create anything that's meant to be read as romantic and sexual. It's it's like when you put William Miller and Paige yeah. Turco in a Especially scene together. Especially Paige Turco in that outfit. It's like, I'm sorry, my mind goes exactly. where it goes. Right, right. <laughs> like I like some of this we can't we just can't help. But what I but what I liked about I mean I, I loved everything about it, but like what I what I really enjoyed about the dynamic of the cabbie story in this episode was was first, I do think it's really important that they re-centered us on, you know, like the Abby that we meet at the beginning of this episode, you know, where we start with that moment where we watch them indirectly meet Maddie, you know, uh, like, like yes. the, mm-hmm. the drawings mm-hmm. and, you know, seeing the second beds. So, like they don't know who she is yet, but I think it's important in terms of that kind of reminder of that family unit. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're in Clark's house it's a link from Abby to Clark to Maddie. And so I think beginning with that, like reminding us, like everything that happens, Abby has this awareness that it's happening in her daughter's home. It's a, it's a way of her kind of getting to see and explore and understand a little bit more about what Clark's life was like when they were separated. So I think that sort of planting Clark at the beginning of it, I think was really important for both for her and for Kane. And then, you know, and then the kind of second, beat of that has to do with the really fascinating, which we sort of alluded to a little bit at the beginning in terms of deflating all of her conspiracies, but like the medical storyline that's happening where, where we're getting to see more detail of why they need Abby as a doctor and, you know, and Vincent both being, you know, creepy as hell and also sort of a test, you know, like Dioza, trying to figure out like is this doctor all talk is she as good as she as we were led to believe that she is you know like how how can i how can i use this tool so what i liked about sort of where where this kind of foreshadows abby's storyline going i think so far they're doing a really 
doing a really great job of, of kind of setting up, like there's, there's two different really crucial pieces of Abby's arc that have been, that were kind of like introduced separately. And this was where we see them first coming together, which is Abby, the addict and Abby, the scientist Mm -hmm. and how those two pieces that we, that of, you know, of, of who she is and of how they'll sort of play into the ongoing storyline. Like we're beginning to get the groundwork of all of the different, you know, occasionally very, uh, very scary ways those things, you know, intersect. And I think, you know, I think it's important that they, you know, acknowledge that like the big challenge here is, it's objectively true that Abby's better at her job when she's on these drugs. Mm. Like Kane can't actually argue with that, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the temptation for her is that, you know, like we see her, you know, running this test at the beginning, her hands are shaking, um, you know, she's disoriented and, you know, and Dioza knows what's up. She's like, I'll, you know, I'll leave you to your shaking and vomiting later. Like, you know, like, like Abby's, she's miserable. She's an incredible physical discomfort. And I think it's really telling that what she says to Kane is like, like, I have to like get this done while I still can. Like that Abby is intending to like power through it. Like mm-hmm. that's the Abby who's like, I'm going to do what I can do. Like, like I'm like, I'm really doing this. This is for real. I have to get all this work done because like in a minute I'm going to be totally catatonic, you know, and, you know, I knows like the physical pain that she's in and is intending to not take the pills anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, so that, so what makes it really heartbreaking, you know, when we see at the, at the end when she's like going through all the files and she's like super efficient and she's very calm and she's very together and he wakes up and he just knows, you know, like mm-hmm. he just like, like she passed the test, so she gets her reward, which you know serves the double purpose for Dioza of you know Abby back on the pills makes Abby more efficient, mm-hmm. which helps Dioza, and it makes Kane more desperate and freaked out, which also serves Dioza because it throws Kane off of his game. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. so she and in the long term, like she doesn't. She doesn't care particularly about like Abby's like long-term health. She needs a short-term service provided, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's really like no skin off of her nose if Abby, you know, if she's making Abby's life in the long-term more difficult because she's, you know, enabling an addict. Like she doesn't care, you know, like this is, this yeah. is a, this is a helpful tool she's trying to leverage, you know? So, so I loved how, how they sort of wove together, you know, the, the fact that, I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth between like Abby trying to shake this addiction because like when she's, when she's in her right mind, like when she's off the pills, even though she's in physical misery, like she understands, like she knows she doesn't want to be that person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she's trying her hardest and, you know, and Dioza who is so good at like leveraging people's vulnerabilities, you know, has spotted that this is a, something that she can exploit both for Abby and for Kane. They're both easier for her to work with when Abby is on the pills because Kane is more scared and Abby is like super competent, mm-hmm. you know? So, so that, so I feel like, you know, both, both just for thinking about like what a tremendous acting challenge it is for Paige to get to, you know, both have to play at the top of her game intellectually as like, 
Abby Griffin, the badass scientist who's going to discover, you know, whatever is the secret thing inside the thing of why this seemingly straightforward illness can't be treated, you know, and also doing that while occasionally, like sometimes she's like, you know, zipping along like a, you know, super efficient, like science robot because she's high. And sometimes she's like sober and has the shakes because she's deep in withdrawal Mm -hmm. and can like hardly move. And she's, she's really earning everything that everyone said about like how fucking epic her performance is going to be this season. But I'm really interested in how like already like the personal and the professional are being woven together, I think, so so carefully. And so I think really, you know, starting us off with, like, recentering us in, like, you know, step one, Abby as a mom. You know, mm-hmm. step two, Abby as the person who loves and is loved by Kane and is, you know, in this incredibly deep and intimate and loving relationship that has withstood six years of you know, an addiction so significant that Kane almost got executed for covering for her. Step three, Abby, the science genius, you know, who has faced seemingly impossible chemistry puzzles before with the nightblood and has come very close to cracking it, you know, and has a brain that is like not to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and also like the the little the little flash that we got in that moment of her and McCreary of reminding us of like, you know, season one, Abby, the like Slytherin renegade mm-hmm. who is not afraid of asshole men <laughs> staring down at her, you know, like, like the moment where he's like, he's like, so like, you know, can you save me? And she's like, I don't know. Should I? And I was like, that is my, like my queen yep. is back. Like I love like that's, you know, so like all of the different facets of Abby that make her this incredibly compelling and complicated person, you know, we're all fully on display and i loved how how sensitively and carefully i think they're handling you know the addiction storyline where like the narrative is not demonizing abby for the fact that she made Cain a promise that she wanted to keep you know she wanted to be a person who could keep that promise that she made to him when she thought that he was dying mm-hmm. that she wouldn't touch the pills again and she still brought the pills with her and even though she didn't take them again you know for a long time and was like trying to kick it when they were put in front of her by Dioza she wasn't ready to not do it yet mm-hmm. you know and and i think they're doing a good job of like that doesn't mean that she loves him any less that doesn't mean that her promise was insincere or like intentionally false it was like it was this incredibly human relatable thing that we've all done of like i'm saying something that i want to be true like yeah. i'm saying this in the hope that me saying it can like manifest it into being even though i'm not quite sure if i'm strong enough or or ready to deliver that yet but like i want to be the kind of person who can make that promise be a truthful one, mm-hmm. you know? And and so I feel like there's such enormous compassion towards the painful, painful predicament that she is in, you know, caught between this, you know, her her physical pain and misery and suffering and knowing that, you know, knowing the damage and the hurt that it's causing, you know, to Cain and, and that it's making her this person that she doesn't want to be. But I also feel like they're really doing doing justice to how it feels to be Kane on the other yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, and like that he has, he, you know, he understands, like he's seen, he's watched it for six years. And, and yeah. I think, I think you had pointed out that, um, the fact that when she's sort of going through withdrawals, he says, I know what to do. Like, this isn't the first time she's tried to kick it and failed, it seems like. Yeah. Um, you know, like he's, he's familiar with what withdrawal looks like. Mm-hmm. And that he doesn't, I think he under, you know, it's clear that he understands that the addiction is is something that is, you know, mastered her some way, you know, in some ways. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's compassion for that, but, like, then also just that, that sort of deep heartbreak and disappointment when yeah. she yeah. breaks the promise, you know, and, like, he can't help himself but say, like, you promised, like, and he knows, like, I think, you know, he says, I, you promised, and I think... They both knew when she made that promise that that wasn't a promise that exactly. she could even keep. But, like, just that kind of, like, constant painful, like, he always hopes that this time she's going to mean it, you know, that mm-hmm. it's going to that it's gonna come true mm-hmm. and then it doesn't. And so, yeah, like, I think they just, they're, they're being very, very sort of, like, true to both sides of it, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think even if his storyline in, you know, in this episode and in setting up the rest of the season was just you know, giving us a lens to explore what does it look like when when you deeply, deeply love somebody who has an addiction and and you're trying to be as supportive as you can be while also being pulled in a bunch of different directions of, you know, I think I think he I think he hit his rock bottom, you know, there in that pit where like I think there, you know, he is like we talked about, like he is done enabling her. I think he's crossed kind of a threshold of his own where he's no longer, I think, willing to be actively complicit. He still is. I think it's possible for him to be like manipulated by Dioza. Yeah. But he's like, he's not going to cover for her anymore. So I think it's, I think it's sort of gearing up to where it's like, you know, the wall is closing in on Abby bit by bit Mm -hmm. by bit where I think, Mm -hmm. I think what's going to happen is she's going to end up in a situation where where as a condition of, you know, continuing to provide her with with the stash, Dioza is going to ask something of Abby that Abby finally realizes, like, this is a line that she can't cross, mm-hmm. you know. And either that what that will mean is she ends up, you know, like Dioza takes the drugs away or locks Abby up, you know, or something where she can't get them anymore. And she's going to end up, you know, fully going through withdrawal, you know, with Kane there to kind of like help her through it. My hope is that when, you know, when she ends up kicking it completely, which I, which I do think we're being set up to like that that'll happen over the course of the season. I hope that it isn't like I'm doing this for Kane. Like, yeah. I hope that Abby does it for Abby. Yeah. I hope that it becomes like, like he's there, that he's a support to her. He's going to help take care of her through it. And, and that his love for her is a thing that she can hold on to, to give her that strength. But I want it to be a choice that Abby makes about like, I don't want to be this person anymore. And I have to sort of dig up from within myself the strength to make this decision for the final time. Cause really that's a more authentic portrait of what kicking an addiction feels like. Like you can't stop being an addict to make somebody else happy. Mm-hmm. It has to come from you. Otherwise things don't stick, you know? Yeah. And so I, I hope that they that they continue as as I think they have been doing to let that messiness and complication, you know, exist for both of them. Where like neither of them is the bad guy here. This is just an incredibly ugly situation that happened, and somebody else is 
tactically exploiting it, which adds an additional layer of complication. But like the heart of the story is like, Abby's not ready. Like she's not ready yet. Mm-hmm. She just isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she will only get there when she gets there. And right now she's not there. And it's miserable for Kane to watch that, you know, and it's dangerous because of what it opens up for McCreary and Dioza. But it's like, Abby has to get to the point where for herself, like from deep within herself, she finds that like, yes, okay, this time I'm ready, you know, and I feel like it as soon as Kane was asleep, you know, she's just not there yet. Yeah. I was going to say, I think if it, does come down to the addiction or a person, um, the person's got to be Clark. Like, I think Clark is the only person. Yes, yes, yes. That, you know, that where she would. And I mean, and that would be, there'd be like a tremendous amount of like drama and emotional stakes there. If it, if the thing mm-hmm. that sort of like finally pushed her over to be like, I'm willing to go through this was like, you know, I have to do this for for Clark. Yeah. Yeah, is she going to do something that would hurt Clark? Yeah, cuz I think cuz I think that there's also being Clark's mother is a piece of Abby's identity in a way where her relationship with Kane is like a love between equals. Yeah. Like, there's just a, there's a different there's a different sense of like who I am is tied up in my love for this person when when it's your child. Yeah. than when it is your lover. Yeah. You know like it's yeah. just a different like, so, and and maybe that's part of why the episode started with sort of, like, seeding into it, you know, in a couple of different places, those reminders of, you know, Clark is so present in this piece of the story because they're literally, like, it's all happening in in her house, you know, in the place yeah. where she lived and, yeah. you know, in that kind of family lineage. So I think that, I think there's a way where that could be really important, too. But I do, yeah, but I, I hope that it is that the kind of closing the loop of this story becomes about Abby, you know, Abby finding her own strength to kind of push through this barrier. And, and what I like about the other piece of the, of the cabbie story that we got in this um, episode, which is the cane half of it. I was surprised and really pleased that he gets a story where he also gets to like do something active, you know, like it was very cryptic, in this sort of preseason stuff, you know, like everyone kept talking about like, oh my God, like the Abby storyline, Abby has this amazing storyline. Like you guys are never going to guess what it is, but it's going to totally fuck you up. It's so emotional and completely amazing and Paige is amazing. And everyone was very, very quiet about like what Kane was going to do. And so I think a lot of us were sort of extrapolating from that. Like Abby's going to have this big arc she's going to go on of which Kane is going to be sort of like a piece of that and a support of that and woven into that as sort of like a, like adjacent to her storyline in the way that we're really seeing so far that like Harper is adjacent to Monty's and doesn't really Mm -hmm. have her own yet. And, and so I was really, really pleased that Kane, the savvy politician who spent six years, you know, in one crew and knows everything there is to know about Octavia, that he gets a way to be like useful on his own merits Apart from being like Mr. Dr. Griffin. Yeah, yeah. Like apart from being like the thing that is leveraged. Which I do Abby, I do enjoy more. that like Dioza kept lampshading that. Like I like I like that Dioza kept yes. being like, Yes, why are you here again? Exactly. What do you bring yeah. to the table? <laughs> you know, this is sort of like a little bit textual, yeah. like yeah. 
you're kind of a loose end flapping around. I don't know what to do with you, but I did like the way it sort mm-hmm. of came back around with Dio's realizing that she had been outmaneuvered by Octavia, which was another one of those moments where I think like that was a surprise. You know, she's like, okay, like I have to, mm-hmm. you know, I have to sort of like recalibrate even a little bit more about who these fanatics are and what they're fanatical about. That kind of was the moment that things like, snapped into place and she's like aha yes okay i need you you know like i need the information that you have mm-hmm. and i love that scene with her and kane it was great uh my favorite all-time kane moment is now oh my God, kane's so face after he takes the tequila shot because it was just like so <laughs> hilarious and in character like Oh, my God. Kane. When you texted me that this had your new favorite all-time Kane moment, so I was, like, watching the scene, being like, ooh, what's it going to be? And then that happened, and I was like, oh, that's (laughs) clearly it. That is it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was beautiful. (laughs) And then, of course, I'm sure all the cabbie shippers are just, like, flailing over, you know, like, the your wife, she's not my wife thing, which was very interesting. Mm-hmm. That after all yes. this time, um, although it's sort of like hilarious, Dioza keeps like swinging and missing on people's relationship status. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like calling Bellamy and Clark, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. hostage changer and his girlfriend, and like, oh, your wife. Eh. <laughs> yeah. She's like, all right, you people have issues. Dioza has this. She does. She does. Yeah. She's like, come on, you guys. <laughs> Clearly should be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What I liked about that, about the the wife moment, I mean, other than, other than obviously then the shippy flails, and, and that I do feel like it ties in with some things that a couple people sort of flagged in 502, where like people using the words husband and wife in conversation to Kane and Abby about other people a uh, lot. Like just sort of like, like words that get dropped into conversational, like Kara did it, Jaha did it, you know, Dio's is doing it. So it's just kind of like, are uh, we laying breadcrumbs uh-huh, towards uh-huh. a kind of wedding potentially? But apart from, you know, apart from that sort of like the, um, this should be foreshadowing. What I liked about that is I feel like, you know, I think it is totally possible that, you know, Dioza with her keen eye for detail did not miss the fact that, like, these people aren't wearing wedding rings. Like, she may have sort of known. But, like, getting him to say it out loud makes him so vulnerable. And I think it's, like, a way of, like, her sort of continual, like, mm-hmm. destabilizing him. You know, and destabilize like, finding where those weaknesses are. And so she says your wife super casually. And he has to kind of admit that, you know... Well, no, that's not like, mm. no, we're not, you know. Um, I also wonder a little bit, you know, part of me was like, is part of this her sort of intel gathering? And like, is she also sort of trying to sniff out, is this man Clark's father? You know, like, like when she's trying to, you know, and kind of figure out like, wh- who, who is whose Ah, uh, yes, that's point, a good point, yeah. You know, and, um, but I, but I, yeah, but I liked it because it's sort of a, like, you know, it makes him so sort of immediately mm-hmm. uncomfortable. And... You know, putting him in this sort of position where he has to kind of you know, like talk about his relationship, which he does not want to do ever. Um, but I loved, but like the whole dynamics, you know, of that of that scene where like him having made this offer to her before that she rejected, of like I can tell you everything that you want to know about you know about Octavia and about one crew, and her basically being like I don't trust traitor, like you're like you're here because that was. That was your wife's conditions. You're not here because I like you <laughs> or think that you have anything to contribute in any way. And, uh, you know, and then, so, yeah, and then sort of realizing, like, 
okay, you know, similar to how she, what she tried to do with Clark at the beginning, where it's like, you know, this is a person who could be very useful if you can, like, get them to trust you enough to tell you what you want to know and kind of sniff them out. And so I like that, you know, that, that with, with Abby, the sort of the leverage point, you know, is, is very clearly the medication. And I think with Kane, the leverage point mm-hmm. is Abby and her kind of, and just the fact, you know, like the way that she's like very casual, lightly flirtatious with, there with a bottle of tequila, looking at the pretty mountains, like her, her kind of utter, comfort in like dominating that space while he's kind of standing there awkward and hesitant and there's armed guards behind him like like just her her sort of effortless ownership of that territory i think the sort of the ground that puts him on is really interesting it's like sort of a nice little reminder that's like you sort of exist here and are alive because i have given permission that that be so yeah yeah and i also and i like the little sort of the juxtaposition of like you know, her perception of him as a traitor and that being something that diminishes his worth in her eyes versus the version of the story that we get of, like, the sort of additional layering in of her backstory mm-hmm. of, like, well, that's, like, that is actually a thing that you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the backstory was yeah. really fascinating, you know, and I think it took me a minute to figure out the uh, significance of her cu- cutting her own throat, which is not a thing that I expected that scar to have come from. No. Okay, so I think she... Was she, like, faking her suicide so that her SEAL team would leave her alone? I didn't think so. I, I so I've heard people... I've, I've seen it sort of people read it uh-huh. both ways. What, how I interpreted it was that she would rather kill herself than go to prison. Mm. And when she said, I should have put two in That's my head. That's kind of what I said. Well, I should have put two in my head. I was like, I like, should have. I, that was the wrong way to try to commit suicide. I should have just gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I thought. And that because the fact that she was alive, the fact that she didn't kill herself successfully is how she got arrested and sent to that asteroid and everything terrible that happened right. to her, including coming back and like having like that she she didn't want the life that she currently has she's making the best of it she doesn't want to die now but i i it felt like there was a little bit of a like you know boy thing sure would have been easier if i'd gotten it right the first time you know and gone clean you know so that was kind of how i read it did you was that how you saw it too I wasn't sure. The first time through, I really wasn't sure, I, and I couldn't tell. I think the second time through, I I'm, I agree with you. I think it was that she was saying, like, that she was genuinely trying to kill herself because she didn't want to get caught, but she was like, but it was dumb. I should have taken the surefire route, and I didn't. And mm-hmm. so and I think there's also, like, an interesting little bit of irony in that she's talking about, like, you know, two to the head, like I taught them, you know, like two to the head, that's the guaranteed way, that she declined taking the second shot at one crew. So I, I sort of wonder if that was like a deliberate irony too, is that she's kind of saying like, my oh, mistake yeah. every time I don't take the second shot, you know, like I train them like two shots to the head, you know, like that's how you sure they're down. I yeah. didn't take the second shot. You know, I didn't do the surefire route with myself. That's always a mistake. So yeah, that's true. I'll be interested to see if that comes back. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right that it's like she, it is the same thing that happened with Octavia. And like, and she's, you know, when Kane comes into that scene, 
It's sort of immediately about Octavia. Yeah, the point, the reason he's there is Octavia, is because Octavia survived that, yeah. and Dioza wasn't expecting it. And now she's like, okay, I need to know some more about this, this mm-hmm, Octavia mm-hmm. person. Yeah, so not taking the second shot is how she ends up in prison, you know, because she doesn't successfully kill herself, and it's also how Octavia gets yeah. away. So yeah, like I, I wonder if Dioza not being... Like, next time Dioza's going to take the second Yeah. Shot, you know, I think is what this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking, know. too. Yeah. It's it's Chekhov's second shot. <laughs> <laughs> She's not throwing away her shot. Uh, but yeah, but I loved, I, the whole dynamic of that scene I thought was so, like, the, the little power plays yeah. I thought were so fascinating. You know, like, the, and, and just how, like, every time we get another different slice of the ways that Dioza has figured out how to kind of like leverage and manipulate people. Like, I think it's really interesting, you know, cause by, so by the end of it, you know, she's like, she's without having to make any kind of a concession to Kane about like, yes, fine. I'll stop giving your wife pills. Like she's given mm-hmm. up nothing. She's yielded no ground, but she's still, gotten him to do what she wants in a way that benefits her anyway. And, you know, because she's willing to explore the possibility of folding the survivors of one crew in with their group so everybody can survive together, you know, which I'm sure is, you know, is not going to, it's not going to work out. But what could be really interesting, I think, in terms of, you know, sort of an, an alliance between those two. We see in the trailer for the next episode that he goes with her back to, or he's like on the ship mm-hmm. with her at least, goes back with her probably to Polis. What I'm interested in is, is how, oh, and then, and then the, the trailer, the little synopsis for 506 basically says that, you know, that Kane's, you know, Kane's attempts to prove useful end up testing one crew's uh, allegiance to Octavia. Mm. So I think what we're seeing set up here, which could be really cool kind of journey for Kane as a character is like, you know, like Octavia really fully kind of becoming his new Pike. Ah, Um, mm -hmm. And, and like sort of the, um, you know, like Octavia offering one vision of leadership and Kane offering an altered one that is more moderate and centered and potentially peeling away from one crew's support of Octavia, even, even if it's like, you know, not everybody, but enough that she doesn't have the entire community's like devotion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like if Kane shows up and he's like, look, like we have like, we have a place to live. We've struck a bargain with these people. You know, they need, you know, doctors and engineers and farmers and whatever. But, like, we're, you know, they're willing to, like, coexist with us instead of being at war with us. You know, to something like Jackson, that's a way more compelling offer than, you know, follow Octavia into battle with a chance that maybe we'll get to keep the whole valley ourselves or maybe we'll all die. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, so I'm interested in seeing a direct kind of face-off between Kane and Octavia for like sort of the battle for the souls of one crew, I think could be really interesting. I don't, I don't see it ending well. I think once that happens, we're past the point where anyone can compromise. 
And and then it's sort of like, then I don't know how that gets reconciled. You know, I guess maybe they all end up on an asteroid. But I'm excited that he gets to do something. I'm excited that, you know, Abby gets a story where she gets to use her skills. He gets a story where he gets to use his skills, in addition to the fact that their relationship and this addiction storyline with all the sort of emotional weight are also really present. So I feel, yeah, I feel good about yeah, where we're at. Yeah, no, I think that sounds good. All right. Well, I think that wraps this up. Okay. Um, so next week is a week off from new episodes, but we will have lots of content coming your way. There's the Cabbie uh, special roundtable podcast, which will be going up, I think, on, sh- on is that going up on show day? Maybe? Yeah, yeah, I think what we decided is that so Tuesday on show day, we'll post the cabbie roundtable. And then on Saturday, when we would ordinarily post our episode recap, we'll have our Louis. Yes, interview. excellent. So uh, cabbie podcast, happy roundtable podcast, and then our interview with Luisa Dolivera, who is the most delightful human being in the entire world. She oh was God, the best. best. You just like. We love so, her much. so much. Prepare to love her as well. So that'll be going up a week after this one goes up, and then the Cabbie podcast will be up before that. And then in two weeks, we'll be back for 506, the title of which I forget. Exit Wounds. Yes. Exit what wounds. a cheerful title. Yes. <laughs> Until <laughs> then, au revoir, my darlings. Bye. Oh, Miss Fancy is going to have drinks with Jason Rothenberg. Oh, I'm going to eat leftover pasta in my pajamas and watch The Expanse. So there. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Okay. I love you. I'm sorry you're not here. <laughs> I know. I love you too, and I hope you have tons of fun with Jason Rothenberg. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.